All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, welcome to the live streaming of Making the Argument. Uh, the term culture war has almost become uh, almost like a derogatory statement. It's almost like an accusation. If someone is talking about the culture war or engaging in what we're called the culture wars, uh, they're, they're almost kind of kind of depicted as kind of like a bad guy or not focusing on the things that are really important. And what's interesting is that this is almost an accusation that has become exclusively directed at the right, which I find interesting because it's not as if the left doesn't engage in cultural things. In fact, we're going to watch a video today that was done by a channel called uh, What If Alt Hist, right? So he, he talks about different scenarios, like different what ifs. Sometimes they're historical. He talks about uh, alternate history, talks about predicting things in the future. And I think he has a really interesting channel. And sometimes I really agree with him and sometimes I don't. But he did a video recently called Is There a Right-Wing Backlash? Or actually said, he goes, there will be essentially a right-wing backlash. And he's talking specifically about how young men are going to rebel about what's going on. And today, we're going to watch through some important portions of his video. And we're going to analyze it. We're going to decide what we agree with, maybe what we don't, maybe why. Yep. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. I predict there will be a few interesting conversations taking place in our circle chat. I hope you will go down to the link in the description of this live stream or podcast if you're on Apple or Spotify. Join our chat there. We'd love to get to know you. And I think that I, I'm really excited for today. This is going to be awesome. It is going to be interesting. Because like I said, I, I, I've, always found, I've always found the videos that I've watched on his channel to be interesting. Um, but every once in a while, he'll say something like, ooh, <laughs> That's that's a little spicy. Well, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good person. Unfortunately, my beautiful bride, Queen of the Beans, could not be here today. Beans? I said bees. Okay. No, I heard bees. <laughs> oh, sorry. Queen of the Bees, not Queen of yeah, Queen of the Bees. She is not here today. Uh, but with us, and that, that's actually a really bummer too, because there's some yeah, there's some subjects on here I really wanted. Her, her input really, really would have. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tina. Anyway, <laughs> our uh, political we, we prognosticator, Tina, our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. Hey, um, I just woke up five minutes ago. Um, now, <laughs> well, that's, we're, well, we're gonna do. We're gonna, the, that, that that actually is a testament to how much I care about this topic because, um, who was it that sent this to me? 
I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty can I, sure. Can I introduce Hamilton real quick, and then we'll get back to your story? Oh, right? everybody knows Hamilton. He's the good Hamilton. The, the Hamilton one that doesn't like central, central banking. banking. Well, with, right. with Hannah not being here, I did get an opportunity to steal her camera. So, so you got a better camera today. Oh, yeah. We're going to need Hamilton to, to like speak up a little bit more in this episode, because <laughs> otherwise, it's just going to be a back and forth between Nick and I. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's. Okay. So let's, let's kind of. Who found this first? I think you did. Was it I, me? Yeah, I think you found it first, or someone sent oh, it to you, it, and then you it sent it to me. us. It was me. Oh, yeah. you, you know who sent it to me? Who? Tyler. I was going to say. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say. No, so it, it, let me let me kind of lay a little bit of groundwork on on what this what this goes through. Um, so essentially what, what he does is he says, and, and he lets you know right off the bat that he typically associates himself with classical liberalism or uh, the right to a degree. Um but I, I want to call him like overwhelmingly conservative, probably, you know, a little bit conservative, a little bit, not, not libertarian. Uh, um, I don't know. I think, I think more classical liberal is probably a good I, way to I have put a it. word to describe these type of people. Um, it's kind of complex. I, I think that he is a very, very soft version of what they would call a neo-reactionary. <laughs> okay. No, no, that, that's an actual yeah, term. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's no, been, no, I get it's it. Been I, pushed I, by um, lazy to make it up. The, the the two biggest guys that have pushed it are probably like Curtis Yarvin and Nick Land, and they actually like came up with the term, and they're basically like like pe people who have come to believe. There's so much that those people believe that we disagree with, yeah. but there's also a significant amount that we probably would agree with because they're very anti-progressive. But basically, they've they came to the conclusion effectively that like, oh, well, democracy's, you know, irreparably broken. Conservatives basically should just be passive and sit back and let the system collapse. And then they can come in and fill the void. I mean, I want to, I, okay. I want to describe him that way, but I mean, it, bottom line is, is that he, he describes himself as being of the right, uh, but certainly want to consider himself like a Trump guy or anything like that, but he's just, just kind of right leaning. And what he does is he lays out kind of um, the, the groundwork for, okay, where's American society at right now, or really Western society as a whole, but he focuses primarily on the United States. Where's America at right now with respect to left, right? What do these terms even mean practically? Um, which, which philosophies are essentially guiding the major cultural and structural institutions of the country? What are the various coalitions? What has developed over the last several Several decades. And then he goes into uh, kind of describing how these different coalitions operate within society and why he thinks that there will be a major right wing backlash that will be led predominantly by young men. And there, there's a there's a quote in here. I don't know if we get to, but it's interesting. And, and it's, I guess it's an old African proverb, which says, if you don't give young men a place in the village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And and what he says is that even though he comes from the right, he's actually pretty worried about what the right-wing reaction will actually look like. So with that kind of groundwork laid, let's go ahead and and take a look at... We're going to be reacting to portions Yeah, we're going to be going right? through. We're going to be going through a bunch of clips, stopping around. All right, so let's go ahead and start with our first clip here. Not one that you or even I can really understand. One of the modern left's favorite phrases is that they are on the right side of history. However, what if I were to tell you that that wasn't true, that the next few decades belong to the very opposite group, the far right? From looking at the patterns in history and trends, I believe that the pendulum will swing back in the other direction for the next few decades. Although I myself am a right winger, it would be a lie for me to say I'm not terrified for how far the pendulum might go in the other direction. For many of you, this will shatter your conception of the universe, and I'm excited to see what the comments are for this video. Well, why are we wasting time? Let's get started. 
Okay, go ahead and pause there. Um, so again, like right up, right off the bat, it's it because it does. It seems like the left is totally in the ascendancy right now, and, oh, yeah. and the right's been asleep at the wheel for for quite a long time. So let's go ahead and jump over to the uh, the next cliff we have. I think it starts at three fifteen. Don't don't you love the um the right the, side the, of history? Yeah, we're on the right side of history. Oh my gosh. Nick, you're the evil, mean, bigoted fascist yeah. that's on the wrong side of history. We're yeah. the altruistic well, good it's, people. It's, well, it's also this idea. You hear this before, and, and this is really popular. It's like, you know, history has a long arc, but it bends toward justice. N- no, it doesn't. Like, I, It really doesn't. Like, it, it, it's fine for us to say that right now, especially as, as we've... I that's mean, a very Whiggish view of history. The, the last, the la- I would say the last 300 years have been... have completely just broken the rules of, of what world history looked like for the previous, you know, or for what, you know, written world history that we know of looked like for the previous 10,000 years. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a long arc and it started bending pretty significantly in different directions only in the last really 300 years. So that's where I, I find that statement kind of funny, but anyway, all right, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and hear what he has next year. Era of history we live in, the culture we live in and all that. Thus, it's incredibly funny to see the left portray itself as the rebels and the little guy. Well, in fact, they are the ruling class today. In the modern West, the left is the establishment. You can easily see this in that Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, and Donald Trump have all had legal action taken against them, while there's no left-wing equivalent. In my own story, YouTube has removed my videos on completely innocuous educational topics like American regional cultures or Southeast Asian anthropology, without telling me why. The conservative satire site The Babylon Bee has this really funny segment about how a very large amount of American conservative leaders have been kicked off Twitter, but at the same time people like Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, lots of officials for the Chinese Communist Party which is committing genocide, as well as even Vladimir Putin's Russian government Twitter account have maintained, showing a clear ideological bias. The dominant social institutions of academia, the media, Hollywood, most of the news, the bureaucracy, large parts of social media, growing parts of the military, the largest corporations and defense contractors, significant parts of religious institutions, in the United States, the presidency, and large parts of the legislature are run by left-wingers and often very radical ones at that. Pause that Although for the a right second. occasionally wins. Pause that for a second. So I, I think that's I think that's an important. We've made that point several times on here. Like I I, I agree with him on this. If you look at every major culturally or, or cultural shaping institution, arts, entertainment, Hollywood, uh, media, academia, even like public education right now. If you if you're going to a typical public school, it it chances are most of your curriculum. It is going to it it's not neutral with respect to co- the competing worldviews between the left and the right. Um, not to mention the fact that most of your teachers, most of your teachers, even if they're not left wing, right, they went through a university that was almost certainly 85 to 90% of the professors that they had, that they were exposed to a lot of the, the curriculum that they received in order to get the proper courses to get their teaching credentials. Oh, I, I never had a, a conservative professor in college. I mean, and that's that's just the reality. So it's, and, and again, people will say, oh, so you're, you're attacking all teachers. No, I'm not. I, I'm saying that it, it is interesting to me that the institutions which are responsible for educating our teachers, right, are overwhelmingly left-wing 
and 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 I'm not talking about left wing like oh they they tend to prefer Democrats when they when they vote. I'm talking about a <laughs> very steeped in critical theory, critical pedagogy. So yeah, I I think this. In fact, this is one thing that I get in trouble with conservatives with sometimes, especially ones when we're talking about election results. And they'll say things like. Well, the only way they can win is if they cheat on elections. I'm like, oh, okay, so let me ask you a question just real quick, all right? Which political ideology, like conservative, you know, religious, or woke progressive, out of those two, generally speaking, which do you think has greater influence over Hollywood, the media, academia, school, or ed education in general, um, arts and entertainment, and government bureaucracy? And, like, and Wall Street. And Wall Street now. And they'll be like, oh, oh, well, obviously it's woke progressives. I'm like, well, then what are you telling me? The only way they can win is by cheating at the ballot box. They already cheat. They cheated before <laughs> the ballot box. This is what, what people on the right, I don't think, fully grasped yet. I hear people say, oh, well, the election was stolen from Trump. The election was stolen before a single ballot had even been cast. And it wasn't stolen in the form of fraudulently, fraudulently changing the results in voting machines. It was stolen in the sense that in gen multiple generations of people have been raised in exclusively left-wing environments without any competing ideology whatsoever being given to them. And they've basically been indoctrinated into the whole idea that, oh, well, they're on the right side of history. Well, we, we, we saw this with the pandemic too, where all of a sudden it, you, you actually had well-credentialed intelligent people that had you know credentials within the appropriate field being shut down by Twitter. Now, now we obviously know now with the Twitter files and stuff like how instrumental the government and and this is the government even when Trump was in office because we need to understand that just because, you know, one person is the president doesn't mean it changes the entire nature or, or culture of the bureaucracy. All right, but we now learn that the government was heavily influential within those decisions, but let's face it, Google, Twitter, Facebook, they were more than happy to comply with shutting down any narrative that wasn't pre-approved by the government. And, and, and when we say by the government, by, specifically the FBI. Well, yeah, specifically by institutions within the government that are, are certainly not conservative-leaning in any sort of respect. So I, I, I tend to agree with him that, the, and, and again, this is something where I'm not saying... I, I'm not saying they. I'm not, I'm not even saying they cheated when they when they you know became largely influential in all of these institutions. They put in the work. Uh, it's it's within a, it's those a figure of speech. I get it. They put in those works within those cultural institutions, and the right did it. Here, here's what I mean by the institution part is actually really important. I'm not I'm not sure how much in depth you want to go into that in this episode, because that really gets to the heart of, of why the left is is ascendant and also why they've undertaken some of the actions that they've taken that that this guy argues is going to eventually lead to a very, very forceful pushback from the right. Because the whole like, like cultural hegemony that has been established on the left it, it is a real thing. But the problem is, is that a lot of people don't, I think, properly understand it. They kind of chalk it up to a simplistic view. Oh, it's a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's an organic process. It's not yeah. being it, it. This is not like like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates got together at some Ruby Tuesdays one day and decided <laughs> to like map out some plan for world domination. That's not yeah. how this worked. Yeah. It's an organic process. Yeah. I think he used the term, uh, he's going to eventually, I believe, use the term the Leviathan to describe the yeah. end state. But but the, the beginning of this has 
there's all these different phrases that exist on the internet. My favorite one that I've discovered over the past year is the cathedral. And the reason that yeah. they call it that is because it, it has almost quasi-religious connotations. And also a cathedral is not a person, it's a building, mm -hmm. right? So people come and go, right? The, the, the leaders, so to speak, come and go, which is why it's not a conspiracy, right? It, it's somebody gets grown up, indoctrinated into the system, serves within the system, and then retires to the pews. Mm -hmm. And then they're replaced by somebody else that fills their role. Yeah. And so it's not, again, it, it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's a series well, and, of institutions. And, do, and if you want proof of it, wait until June 1st. Yeah. We, oh yeah, yeah. Wait until pride month. Yeah. And then you will have all the proof that you possibly need yeah. of all of the companies that have nothing to do with yeah. pushing this agenda, slapping rainbow flags on their logos. But yeah. notice how they don't change any of them in say Kuwait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's yeah. so, so, I mean, th th there's evidence all around that and that that's just within the corporate sector. I mean, you've brought up before well, how much, how much influence they have within the, you know, academia within Hollywood and all these other institutions as so well. I, I, well. I mean, bottom line is I, th I think he's, I think he's correct. I, I think the left dominates within most of the culturally shaping institutions. Let's go ahead and we got a couple more and then we'll jump to the next clip. So go to hit play. Wins elections, the left runs every major institution in society. The quote-unquote rebels and oppressed now run society. As befits an old entrenched elite, they crack down on dissent and try to spread their ideology. They have tried to turn every movie, TV show, all art, classes in school and university, and every other output for human thought into their propaganda. If you can't see this already, you don't want to see it, or you're old enough to be detached from the main part of the society. All right, let's stop there. This is another thing that's that's interesting, and you see this all the time. There's actually a, really, a couple of really funny channels. One of them's called Nerdrotic. Another one's called The Critical Drinker, which I can't recommend the language on that one, but he, he's he's funny. Oh, if you like the language, though, they're great. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> well, Nerd, Nerdrotic does, but they, or typically doesn't. But they, they do analysis. They do a lot of analysis of um, modern-day Hollywood and, and things of that nature. And, and one of the things they talk about is just, uh, and that, that I think makes a lot of sense, especially this last, this last video, uh, Cleopatra. And here's, what's so interesting. You can look at, you know, the, the little mermaid and you can look at snow white and you can look at these other characters that they're doing where now they're, they're changing out the race of the person playing the character. What, and, and again, on fictional characters, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly care so much. What, what I do find interesting is when they take historical characters and, and they, and they race swap them. People are like, well, why do you even notice? Why do you care? It's like, you, because you're doing, because again, because you're lying about history. Because if, if we were doing, if we were doing a movie about Shaka Zulu and you had a white dude playing him, I'd be like, this isn't right. Like the, I'm a huge John Wayne fan. I'm a huge John Wayne fan. The dumbest John Wayne movie ever made was the conqueror because he played Genghis Khan. No, no, I'm so, Duke. I love you, man. I'm sorry. No, it didn't make sense. Right. And so this is one of those things where people look at this like the reason why we're noticing is because you've made something that's obviously historically inaccurate. And, and the reason why people got so mad about Cleopatra is because they didn't push that out there as a, a movie or fiction. It says a Netflix documentary where, where they're doing this. And so once again, it's, it's almost like the, they're intentionally doing stuff that is factually incorrect. Every record they're has been destroyed. They're changing history. Like, cause again, Cleopatra was Macedonian, right? She was, she was part of the Ptolemaic kingdom. Yeah, It's worth noting the name itself has Greek origins. One of Alexander's sisters, yeah. not the famous Cleopatra, but one of Alexander's oh, yeah. sisters was named Cleopatra. Oh, it's, there was it's 20 very, Cleopatras. It's a very common ancient Macedonian, ancient Greek name. And, 
and Cleopatra herself was a direct descendant of Ptolemy. Yeah. One of Alexander's generals. She yeah. was she was Greek through and through, especially because they inbred. Yeah, they did. Yeah, like the I, whole dynastic <laughs> line was incestuous. It's like, I, and again, again, when it, this is the part that just blows my mind. It's they will do something like that, and when you point it out, it's like, oh, you must be a racist. No, I just think that's historically inaccurate. And I and I would like, and it was really funny when it was it, it was Egypt themselves, like the government of Egypt, sued sued Netflix over this. Oh, and and then they threatened to make their own documentary. Yeah. Um. So I mean, more power to I. I actually find that very funny because Egypt today is an Arabic country. It's not a Greek country, yeah, but yeah. I mean, more power to them to defend the historical legacy of their country as yeah. they, as they rightfully should. I, I will say this though, you said something that I think is going to be brought up over and over and over again in the future here. And, and this kind of hints at the, at the potential dark side that, that could emerge within yeah. the right. And you said, Oh, well the response is, is that when somebody on the right or just somebody in general, complains about something that the left does as being factually inaccurate, using the Cleopatra thing as, as an example. The left's response is, well, you're a racist. Yeah. What I think is going to eventually happen is that people are going to be like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. And that will be the official response that the left will be receiving. Mm -hmm. Some people that will say, I don't care, are simply saying, I don't care what you have to call me, what yeah. you have to say to me. I, I'm going to keep fighting for what I'm going to keep fighting for. Other people are going to say, I don't care because you have raised me and taught me from the moment that I was born that I am evil and that I am racist and that I am bigoted and that I am everything that's wrong with society because of my race or my skin color or my gender yeah. or, 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 or sex. And you know what? I'm going to play that role. Mm -hmm. And and that is, I think, the dark side of the right that could yeah. be emerging. So it's just worth... It's, it's just something that oh, I know it's going to come the, up. It's going yeah. okay, so let, let's hit let's hit the next clip. Equity or equal outcomes and equality or legal equality. The sheer demographic power of the baby boomer generation, which in Western countries grew up in the easiest era in history ever, as I talk about in this video, has meant that the 1960s cultural norms have been pushed ever since, and now have reached the point of absurdity. The message uh, here, that hit the a, baby here, pause real quick. Is that judging Actually, someone? Wait, I'm sorry. Let, let, keep going the, through this. The boomer the worst mindset. thing a person can do, and that humanity is inherently good. Both of which anyone who has studied human nature or the historic record can see as a complete lie. All right, stop there. Here's what I. This is yeah, so funny. He, he, he describes. <laughs> can the we boomer, read this off? To yes, I will. He describes the boomer mindset uh, of three things: judging or harming someone is the worst thing you can possibly do. Do two, humanity is inherently equal and good. And three, I want everything now since it's all going to work out anyway. And and he and he's talking about the, this kind of. And, and again, this is a it's very a general thing. There's very there are some, but like for example, my my um grandfather, um, definitely a boomer, born yeah. in the in you know in that time period. Um, he does not fall into these categories, but what I what he's describing is not necessarily everybody in the generation. What he's describing is the leaders that yeah. have taken political power from that generation. People like the Clintons, yeah, or for that matter, people like the Bushes. Well, well you uh, see, you see this with the whole judging or harming someone. This is this is really interesting. There's other people that have that have done some really good work on this because obviously there there can be problems with you know being uh, inappropriately judgmental. Now, I do find it interesting that one of the common responses whenever you give a critique, or I want I shouldn't say whenever, oftentimes when I give a critique of someone on the left and they're sitting right there, they will look at me and be like, why are you being so judgmental? And I'll have to look back and be like, do you realize you just engaged in judgment? Like you just judged me for judging you, which means clearly your problem isn't with judgment. 
Your problem is with something I'm saying. So what you need to do is not focus on the judgment component because all of us rely upon that in order to make good decisions. We need to rely on us. What do you think is wrong with either the evidence you're using or with the critique I'm doing? But they don't want to do that. It's just, oh, that's judging. You can't judge. You just did. Everything you're doing, your whole movement is based off of the idea that you are judging what what is you know kind of certain cultural norms or, or traditions of the United States. You've judged them to be inferior or immoral or wrong or bigoted, and now you want to replace them. And the moment I say, wait a second, I agree with you over here, but I disagree with you here, and this is why. It was, stop judging me. It, it that's impossible. This has happened to you in that's person. Impossible. It has. It? Yes, and and it and it. It drives it drives me nuts. I know it's got to drive members of our audience nuts because you'll just be saying like, no, I want to have an honest conversation. You just spent the last 30 minutes giving a critique of the United States, our tradition, our cultures, our history. I want to respond to some of it. And the moment I don't agree with you on some of it or the moment I think that your analysis is incorrect or some of the things that you're lifting up is good, I might be bad. You're now accusing me of judging. But you... It, it's it's inevitable, and you, we both I mean, did it. Th- 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 there's other examples of this, like the one that I see directed towards you all the time is like trolls on Twitter will call you a Nazi. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I I I mean I'm sorry, but like yeah, anybody that has read, go read like because one thing the Nazis did was they kept excellent records. Yeah, it's that German. Into intuition, I suppose they they, they were great record keepers, right? Yeah. Like go read up like General Plan Ost. And, yeah. and, and like, like the documents that they kept about the final solution or, and like what they had planned. And then honestly ask yourself if the person that I have a political disagreement about what the marginal tax rate should be yeah. for the state income tax is a Nazi. Well, we, I'm sorry, but the, the Nazis engaged in mass genocide against Slavic people and Jewish people because they thought that they were subhuman. That is not the equivalent of saying, I think people should have an inherent right to defend themselves with a firearm of their choosing. <laughs> and and yet it's just commonly thrown out there yeah. in left-wing circles to just call people these things. And then they don't expect any sort of like pushback eventually. What's going to happen is, is that they're, they're the boy who cried wolf. And if they're just going to call anybody that's their political opposition, a fascist or a Nazi, what's going to happen is, is when the actual fascists come along, I don't think the general public is going to believe them. Well, it, it's it's also something too where you, you part of the reason why they part of the reason why some of these this terminology is used is because they know that within society there's a there's a general disdain for those things, like, yes. and that's a positive thing. It is a wonderful thing that an no, American they wouldn't call you George Washington yeah, because well, it's, that's well, yeah. eventually he'll be demonized yeah. too. But well, it's it's just it's amazing that the 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 insults that are used are used because they're recognized as insults, right? If if you really thought the United States was as racist and misogynist as you claim, the response back from most people when you when you said that to them would be so what, yeah, and. But that's not the response. The response is, no, I'm not those things. Those things have an objective definition, and I don't meet that objective definition. Well, my narrative, my worldview says otherwise. So anyways, so he's he's basically, he laid the groundwork kind of for where the left is, the, the philosophy, this whole idea between equity and equality, um, this, this push toward, and, and again, equity has even been redefined now to essentially explain equality of outcomes. They'll say it's equality of opportunity, but then you ask them, okay, even if it's equality of opportunity, which also, by the way, is impossible to achieve, right? What you what you can set up is you can set up a society where there is no legal barriers to doing various things. You can, can I just point out, you it's can't not s- actually equality of outcome. It's 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 not because it's, it's only equality of outcome for 
issues that the left cares about. They do not want equity when it comes to the number of men and women in prison. Yeah. They do not want equity <laughs> in terms point. of the number of, yeah. of bricklayers of <laughs> bricklayers and the number of garbage collectors and the uh, the 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 um, sexual composition of of you know uh, college graduates, yeah. which are overwhelmingly female today. They don't want equity on those things. Mm-mm. So so no, it's it's equity on things that politically benefit them and that work to their advantage and so i mean it's it's even more cynical than i don't even know how to describe it it's even more cynical than i think we've 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 described it so far well let's let's so the next part he talks about is from carol quigley he says possibly the greatest historian of the last century carol quigley said a society needed six things to work to succeed military economic political social religious and intellectual go ahead and hit play A car needs so many things to work, and a single error can keep it from functioning. Societies are the same, in that a single problem, like a failed military, a terrible economy, a religion that's not compelling, and many more, can doom a society to failure. The way healthy societies view the world is that their traditions are almost like a castle against the chaos of the world. Almost everything new that's attempted fails, and traditions and evolutionary processes mean we can pull on billions of years of our ancestors who have been trying to figure out how to make things work. The problem with most societies is they're incapable of changing out their traditions, dooming their societies to fossilization. However, the most successful cultures, for example the West, are able to keep their core identities and then develop institutions like democracies or markets that gradually change out traditions as the world changes so they can keep their vigor as the world keeps changing around them. All right, pause there. Uh, yeah, I think, th- I think that's really interesting. Um, the the whole concept of how does this how does this society adapt over time in order to incorporate um, new ideas or concepts uh, new technology and and what is the overall response to that and what's what's interesting about the way the United States Constitution was written was that when you look at the Bill of Rights and when you look at what uh, authorities were actually given to the federal government it really was written in mind with this whole idea of that okay what what are the what are certain sustaining foundational principles which should guide the way that we address problems as they arise? It, it wasn't this idea of we're going to lay out every specific thing. You read, you read constitutions like in, in other parts of the world where they lay out specifics of everybody is, you know, has a right to affordable housing and everyone has a right to this. And, everyone, and, and, and our constitution w- was written our constitution is intentionally, intentionally short and vague yes. compared well, to... Well, I would argue, it, okay, it, it's... I would disagree with vague. Um, I, I think it's actually very, very specific, especially when you read things like Article 1, Section 8, where it lists out very specific powers. Here's what I would say is that... Fair point. When I say vague, I, I really mean broad. It's 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 not specific. Like, like, for example, we don't have some provision in there about the right to rail transport. Yeah. Right? Like, like I mean, some of these more left-wing societies have... I mean, just, just read the amount of amendments that they have. Yeah. And, 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 and some... like. Go read the Constitution of South Africa. Or here's a better example. Go read the uh, Constitution of, of Tanzania shortly after they got their independence and they decided that they really, what they really needed was some hardcore Marxist-Leninism in order to to throw off the shackles of colonialism. Yeah. And instead, like, the entire economy ended up collapsing and the country fell into basically becoming a third, a third world state. Like, a lot of the... I, I feel like there's a, a direct proportion between almost a curvature 
between the number of words in a constitution and the economic standing and well-being of that country. <laughs> Having no constitution... Sometimes, unless you're the British, usually yeah. means basically anarchy. But having more words than the Bible yeah. usually means you're North Korea. Yeah. Um, so, but but I I get where you're going. Vague is probably not. Well, the I, I think word. what it, like we we had this we had this I, I did a short a while back that that was pretty popular because it was a civics teacher who was on there talking about how show me in the Constitution where it says you can have an AR-15. Oh wait, show me, and I'm like. That's a ridiculous argument. Obviously, it wouldn't be there. It hadn't been invented yet. Here, here, here's where I can show you. It's the part where it says arms, right? That that's what falls into that. The same reason why the Constitution doesn't lay out with with respect to freedom of religion every single specific religion which existed at that particular time because they weren't trying to protect specific religions. They were trying to protect the overall concept of religious belief. When they talked about freedom of the press, they weren't trying to protect a particular news agency or medium of, of getting information out to people. They were trying to protect the concept and all of the different ways that technology and society could develop to fall within that realm. So what it was is they chose their words carefully in order to protect general principles. And then when it came to limiting government, then they got a lot more specific. So they, they tried to make it out where the, the overall impression um, that we should take looking at government and society is that the people are the ones that have the power, the people are the ones that have rights, and then the government has responsibilities. And, and I think that's an important distinction. We got one question here I want to go to. Let me see here. I just had it a second ago. Um, okay, question. Uh, let me see. Where was it? Gosh dang. I've got an I've got a question that's worth reading off. Well, I had one. It was like, do you really think we're headed toward? Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's a question one. from Bandit. Are we really heading more towards, or um, uh, more to the right or more authoritarian? I think he. Excellent question. I I think it's more authoritarian. Oh, really? I was about to say the same thing. I think it's more authoritarian. I I think I think what you're starting to see is the the uh, here's what I'll say, and it's interesting. This seems counterintuitive, because when people think of liberal. They think of like anti-authoritarian, right? Like Antifa. If you don't support Antifa, what are you for? Fascism? Okay, but then you oh, but then you look at argument. the processes that they try to use to achieve their objectives. It's almost always through the extension of government power. It, it's the it's the re-understanding or the reimagining of rights is not as as rights to live your life free from interference from the government or others, but rather rights to things, to goods, to products, to services. And that the way that you're going to attain those rights is through government power and centralization and control. Well, I, I'm sorry. If you're going to make the government big enough to give you all of those things, you have to give them the requisite power. And lo and behold, those end up always drifting toward authoritarian or totalitarian states. And I, the, the problem, the concern that I have right now is that classical liberalism or, or what has been more associated with conservative political thought within the United States has been this idea that no, we have to limit government in order to in order to maintain individual liberty and human freedom. But I'm seeing more and more conservatives go, screw this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They're using the government to get what they want. Well, fine, we're going to use the government to get what we want. And now all of a sudden you have a situation where both sides, like the predominant elements within the the political spectrum are both arguing for more authoritarian control. And that's, I think he's absolutely right. And I, I find that. Would scary. you consider those individuals within the Republican party more in the middle rather than the conservative and Liberty wing? I, I think it's, I, I think it's, I think it's its own thing. I think it's right wing populism. Okay. It's so l let me put it this way. Like, so I'm a, um, I, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I am conservative in my values. I am, I am, 
you know, if, if we lined up all the major social issues from abortion to marriage to everything else, yeah. you would find me coming down on a, a, a much more hardcore conservative interpretation. But when it comes to the government involvement in those things, that's where I take a, a very hard liberty stance toward right. things where okay. my position is, is look, I want to be free to live my life the way I want in, in line with, with my moral religious, you know, precepts. I don't, I don't want to force you to do that, yep. but I want to be responsible for the consequences of my actions. I want you to be responsible for the consequences of your actions. And I don't want the government to come in and try to, you know, hurt one of us or punish one of us for, for doing it. I want them to, to take more of a neutral position and just focus on a very, very limited set of things that they should be responsible mm. for. And so that that's where you get into this whole like conservatarian or whatever else you want to call it. But it's the idea that I'm, again, I, I want the government to stay within its limited boundaries I don't want to oppress you. I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want the government to tell you what to do, but you don't get to use the government against me either. Well, people are starting to look at that on the right, especially in right-wing populism and say, okay, it doesn't work though. That we want to be left alone. They want to control us. And the, every compromise we get is they get to control us 50% more than they, you know, they wanted to control us 100%. And so compromises, they only get 50%. Well, we lose in every compromise. Yeah. So you have to hit back. And that that's what I see developing. All right, let's, uh, let's go on to this next part. Hang on. But, However, but, but but before you do, um, I I I think that the authoritarian component is is still going to have a a strong right wing flavor to it because it I don't think it's going to be authoritarian in the sense that the left is currently authoritarian, right? Like 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 it it, it, it and and it's just worth briefly bringing that up because when we usually think of authoritarianism in the U.S. Mm -hmm especially right now, I mean, especially if you're watching this show or listening to it in the car, I mean, we think of progressive politics, right? It's it, I, well, for, we for, do. <laughs> for the longest time, for the longest time, I, I like, for example, for, for the longest time, I always thought like when I first entered politics, I entered politics because I was really into conservative economics. I read Mises, I read Hayek, I read The Road to Serfdom, Bastiat, yeah. all of that stuff. And so I was, I was very convinced of like the Austrian you know, model playing out the business cycle, all yep. that stuff. Right. And so I, I saw the actions of, of like the people that voted for the bailouts in 2008. I was relatively young, but I was old enough to understand what was happening. And then I saw the Obama presidency. I saw him get elected. And then I saw what he was doing in 2009 and 2010. And I kept thinking to myself, this is not going to work. The, the democratic socialists, so to speak, are going to push for socialism until it breaks. That my thought process was this: the the democratic socialism, you know, socialists in the Democratic Party are going to just win election after election after election. It's going to be easier and easier for them to win because of changing demographics. And I don't just mean that in a racial sense. Um, I also meant that in the sense that people were going through the university system like I did, and I was I was seeing people become leftists after mm -hmm. they entered that, right? And so then I thought, well, the leftist is just going to have an easier, easier time of winning election after election, which means they're going to have larger and larger majorities, which means they're going to push for their policies more and more successfully. The problem is, is that those policies don't work. They're going to produce bad outcomes. And when that happens more and more and more, the democratic socialists will abandon democracy before they abandon socialism. I, and that's how we end up in an authoritarian system. Yeah. I've now come to believe that that's not going to happen. I, 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 I genuinely feel like that instead what's going to happen is the democratic socialists, so to speak, are going to supply the rope that will be used to hang themselves, hopefully metaphorically. Mm -hmm. But what I mean by that is, is that notice, here's an example. Notice how 
when Joe Biden took office and when Democrats had the House and Senate after the 2020 elections, they all got together, right? And they said, man, we're so glad that that guy that we called a fascist for the last four years is finally gone. And now that we have a, a trifecta in D.C., we're going to pass a bunch of laws that are going to limit the power of the executive branch. <laughs> they're going to they're going to hold back the administrative state. We're going to rein in presidential oh, overreach. <laughs> We're, we're going to ensure that tools are in place to make sure that nobody who ever accedes to the presidency ever again will be able to establish a fascist dictator in the United States. Oh, wait, <laughs> they didn't do any of that. Yeah, yeah. They, in fact, they did the exact opposite. You know yeah. what they did instead? They passed multi-trillion dollar bills and handed more power to the presidency. Well, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting that one of the most formative things that happened during the presidential election um, in, in uh, 2020 was that 51 members of the intelligence community came out and signed onto a document that said that the lap the Biden laptop, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian propaganda. And we now know that there was active members of the CIA soliciting to this. Here's what I want to say to the like the old school leftists. Did you ever think You'd be working in collaboration with the CIA, CIA and FBI. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you get my point that like yeah. the left is going, especially because of the system that this guy is explaining in this video that we're reacting to. The left has, and we know it, they have, they have achieved tremendous political success yeah. within the electoral system. But that's going to come at the cost long term of what happens when they don't have control of the levers of power forever. We briefly saw it with Trump. Yeah. What happens when you have the next guy that comes yeah. along? All right, let's go on to this next one. As Thomas Sowell has put it, the left is an open view of the world or that humans are perfectible and can be trained to turn the world into a utopia. They hold that if there's a disparity in the world, it must stem from someone's conscious judgment. The reality of the world is that inequality is the norm and stems from a variety of reasons, whether geographic, historical, cultural, and so forth. However, the left thinks the only cause of any kind of disparity is someone oppressing someone else. This may sound silly when put in these terms, but it's an incredibly enticing view of the world since it paints the liberators as heroes and abdicates them from any self-reflection and responsibility since they're the good people who are saving the world. A reasonable person looks at the historic record and uses it to project the future since the past is the only thing we have and thus it's the best thing we have to understand the future. All right, pause this there. Yeah, I, I think, um, <laughs> again, he brings up Thomas Sowell, so I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, that 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 is that is an interesting concept here, and I think to be fair to certain aspects of the left, this idea of if, if you do have a view of the world that is both predominantly secular and essentially believes that you know again the that most of what we see around us are, are merely social constructs, and therefore they're perfectible through better social constructs or through better attitude changes. That makes sense. If you if you adopt that worldview, that makes sense. It's not like they're being crazy here. They've just adopted a different worldview. Now, I believe that worldview is incorrect. I think it's it's so foundationally flawed that it's going to constantly yield worse and worse results. And and again, this is why so much of this stems from Marx. This is why so much of this tends toward at the end of the day an atheistic worldview. Now, there's going to be atheists on here to be like, oh, "I I can't stand Mar I get it. I'm not saying that all atheists are leftists, but I am saying that that predominantly within leftism, even even when they take on religious components, it's it's usually a religious component which serves the secular or the political agenda. 
it, it's the social gospel theory. It's the idea that Christ didn't come to save you know us from our sins. Uh, Christ came to actually teach everyone about why we needed to be nice to one another and you know give our money to the Romans so they could come up with a welfare state. Right. That's it, the, the, the problem with modern day progressivism is not actually that it's a false religion. It's that it presents religion falsely. Mm-hmm. And and here's what I mean by that. It's that. The left has basically taken, without realizing it, modern-day progressivism has basically taken Nietzsche's view of, of you know, the death of God and the rise of mm-hmm. the Ubermensch and, and said, okay, so everybody is the Ubermensch and all that we need is the right social conditioning yeah. in order to create that, that s- such a person. But the problem is, is that if you believe the opposite, that, that mankind is not perfectible and that mankind is flawed, even if you don't subscribe to a religious worldview, but yeah. you still think that mankind is flawed and not perfectible, obviously people can get better and you always want to strive towards the good. But this, this idea that, that you can completely perfect somebody and create a utopia on earth, we've seen throughout history that, that time and time again, that, that, that simply produces misery and and woe and and basically hell on earth how many times have we had somebody promise utopia and instead delivered hell Mm -hmm. and and so it's when i say it presents religion falsely most world religions do not believe that you can establish the kingdom of god on earth Mm -hmm. and i i say that more metaphorically because it's not just christianity most most religions do not think that you can establish a a perfect society in this world it's the idea that there's another world a lot of them will will call it the afterlife or something like that or heaven but but it's the idea that that is where perfection can be achieved but but not here in this physical world and the left instead views the idea that oh well the the physical world is perfectible but it's only perfectible insofar as we have the political power in order to 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 force through that perfection so I, no, I, I think I, I think, I think that's, that's why it's doomed to failure. Well, and, and and again, it's it's one of those things where it goes back to where like this is a this, it's not an ignoble goal, right? And I think that's the part that's confusing for a lot of people when when the left is looking at this going like, so you're telling me that that even if we can't do it, we shouldn't try. Well, no, I, I'm telling you that if you're trying the wrong thing, it's not gonna it's not gonna yield the results that you claim to want. So we're going to skip ahead here a little bit because he goes over he goes over the uh, the coalition and he says the coalition is uh, essentially um, you know the government um, ethnic this is the left the left's coalition he he describes as being the government um, ethnic and sexual minorities and predominantly women and then one of the things he gets into that this is something I really wanted Tina here for but for for any of the yeah, any her- of the women that we have watching on this I really want to get your take on this because this is something that I've just recently come across in the last year. And what, what he's talking about now is he goes into the, okay, here, here's the left, here's what they believe, here's the coalition of the left, right? Um, or what he believes is the coalition of the left. And then here's how they operate. And specifically right now, what he's talking about here is kind of like the feminist movement and the feminist movement. And, and he's talking about feminist aggression. So obviously we, we're not all that confused with how men deal with aggression. Men deal with aggression typically through physical force or violence. And the argument through this, and and this isn't his theory, but it's that because women typically cannot compete in in a physical aggression component with men, and they typically don't with other women as well, they still have methods of aggression, 
And there can be positive methods and there can be, you know, bad methods uh, of, you know, obviously carrying this out. But this is where you get into the whole concept of GSR, right? Gossiping, shaming, rallying. And so for any of the women that are watching, I would love to get your guys' take on this because, again, this is relatively new theory to me, but he's talking about how this sort of, this sort of strategy for aggression has actually become predominant within the left-wing movement within the United States. So let's go ahead and hit uh, play show women are just as aggressive as men and they compete through relationships using something my friend Kurt Doolittle refers to as GSR or gossiping, shaming, and rallying. When you look at cancel culture, how social justice pushes shaming to reach its goals, it's feminine aggression. Likewise, since women have been protected by men from the harshest parts of nature, like war, animals, forest fires, or the jungle. Hey, pause real social quick. This is one area where I think he is way oversimplifying. He says men have protected women from the worst parts of, of society. I, I, I get that. Like, I get that he's saying we typically didn't, you know, force women to go off to war. And, and obviously there, there's been, there, there's been a trend throughout society that the traditional roles is that, um, the husband or the father is there to protect women, to protect society. I think we also have to recognize that the biggest threat to women has also been men. I don't, I don't buy it. And the reason why is because the biggest threat to men has also been men. Yeah, no, that's true. I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing that. So what, what I'm saying is that I think we have to properly, we have to properly phrase this because this almost comes off as, oh, you know, women have had it, women have had it easy because men have, have been protecting them. It's like, well, no, some men have been protecting women and they're usually protecting them from other men. That's not to say that women are also not a threat to each other. They clearly are. I what, just think it has to be properly understood. What he's getting at, and you hinted at this, what he's getting at is that men have been the one who have died in battle by the yes hundreds yeah. of millions throughout history. Yeah. It's it's men have been the one that that usually get tortured and in executed for for political causes. Not not women. W women are usually fought over by men, historic, especially if you go far enough back in history. Yeah. But they're and and this is still cruel, but it's a different type of cruelty. They're usually treated as a prize in war, not an obstacle that you have to kill in order to achieve the prize. And I and I don't I, I understand that. I what I want to clarify here when we talk about this is that we're not suggesting that women have had it easy throughout time and that men have always just adopted their role as protecting women. No, I mean, a lot of those things that happened in war was raping and pillaging and, and things of that nature as well. And women were incredibly vulnerable to that because they didn't have the ability to respond in a physical manner with the same degree of, of effective application of violence. And so the, the way what he's talking about is the ways women's have, have developed aggression is through the gossip, shaming, rallying. And he's going to go into this a little bit later because let's, let's, what he's saying is, is that because men have, have focused or should focus to protect women, from these things, right? But because women are still capable of, and at times, you know, required to act aggressively, that these are the these are the skill sets they've they've developed. That's his. That's the claim. I'm just trying to clarify. I'm just trying to clarify that what needs to be understood here is that gossiping, shaming, and rallying doesn't mean a whole lot. All right, when when the horde comes in to burn your village down. You you said it best in a podcast from oh gosh, a couple months ago and you said we we were talking about like oh, oh you know, the, the the nonsense that men need to be more emotionally available and that that's really the the big ill that's that's afflicting us in society and you were you you said something along the lines of when the T80s rolled across the border in Ukraine, 
Ukrainian women were not looking for men to be emotionally available. <laughs> they were looking for men to kill Russians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you got in trouble for that. It, is it, is it false? I don't. It's not, get, false. Like, it's not let, false. Let's be honest. This gets back to the heart of this problem. The yeah. fact that you just said you got in trouble for that. For yeah. what? For, yeah. for saying something that's factually true? Yeah. Be, be, because it makes it makes me feel uncomfortable yeah. talking about people dying in a war, a mm -hmm. full-scale war. I don't mean a proxy war, like an actual full-scale war in the 21st uh, century. And, and I've been to war. It should make everybody <laughs> feel uncomfortable. But the fact that you just said there that you got in trouble with some people, because because what? Because you said something that was factually correct. Yeah. Well, well, the, and, and this and is, I think it really get the, the reason that I'm going off on this tangent yeah. is because I think this really gets to the heart of just how thorough the left's control over society and culture is that we know deep down inside, if you're watching this or you're listening to this in the car, you know, deep down inside, there are things that are factually true, not that are up for debate. In fact, the debate is, is stifled and silenced because everybody deep down inside knows what the truth is, but they are not allowed to say it. And the reason why is because it carries social implications if they do say it. And the left has been able to censor people from saying the truth. That goes to speak to just how powerful they have become within society, within the culture, within all of our, our private and public institutions, that, that there are things that are, are factually correct. It's, it's almost like you are you feel compelled to not say two plus two equals four because somebody will get offended by it. No, I, I agree. And I think that's part of that gossip shaming rallying. The, and the reason why I made that statement, the reason why I don't shy away from it, is because one of the things that I do think needs to be properly understood is that we are living in a society where we have greater, you know, legal equality, which I think is is a positive thing, legal equality and and access to opportunities. Like we we've removed so many legal barriers from access to opportunities that I think is good and appropriate. The problem is, is that now the left has said, well, that's not good enough because clearly there's something systemic still affecting society because we've removed these barriers and yet People are not behaving in the way we want them to. It's like, golly gee willikers. I wonder if that has anything to do with it's their almost own. almost like human nature is enduring. I, 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 wonder if, I wonder if that has something to do with the way that people actually feel about these things. So I, I just wanted to clarify that, not because I'm getting on this bandwagon of man bad, women good. It's more of no individuals can be good or bad based off of the decisions they make and the I things they I remember I once got into a huge fight with you and I was like, and I'm sick of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, no, I, I get it that you're yeah. you're not you're not jumping on like the man hating train. Yeah, I just train. I just want to put things in proper perspective because I don't want I, I had this happen once when I talked about the '60s and I had somebody that I really I had somebody that I really respect who was black come up to me and be like, "Why did you say the '60s?" I'm like, "Oh, I was talking about the problems with the sexual revolution and how like that's where we first saw a lot of you know indoctrination coming in." He's like, "When you say the '60s." I'll, as a black person, what I hear is the civil rights movement. I'm like, no, I'm good with the civil rights movement. Like that was a positive aspect. I it's think this. that, that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about how like there's, there's things that we say are true and yet we get shamed for saying them. Yeah. In this case that like nobody that ever sits down with you, like, like one of your favorite philosophers of all time is a black man. Yeah. It's Thomas Sowell. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, I honestly, if you're an actual racist through and through, you would be unwilling to say Thomas Sowell is a lot smarter than me. 
I'm willing to say that. Thomas Sowell is a genius. By the way, for the audience, if you've never actually read Thomas Sowell, we talk about him a lot on the podcast. When you're when you're done which, um, watching the show, go read literally any of his works. Yeah. He is he is one of the preeminent philosophers in the center right or the right in American culture and society yeah. today. And he has been for the last like 30 or 40 years. The guy is an absolute genius. There's very few people on the right that have his level of like intellectual caliber. And the guy was born in the 1930s in the Jim Crow South as a black man mm -hmm. and then eventually grew up in Harlem mm -hmm. and and has he had everything against him yeah. in the sense that he started off with with the deck stacked against him as the left likes to say it and yet he has just contributed so much to conservative thought today. So let's let's look at all right. So let's let's get back to this whole so gossiping, shaming, rallying. Right? What he's, he's essentially saying is is that this is this is in a pattern of aggression generally recognized in the way that women interact with one another and interact with men, and that essentially leftist ideology and woke ideology specifically uses gossiping, shaming, and rallying as their method of aggression. All right. So let's go ahead and listen to this next part have no leverage. If you were to see a GSR-based movement, it would have two separate things. The first is that it would despise families and the sexes getting along, because that's normally what happens in society where the sexes pair off and start families, and modern social justice thinks being a mother is the worst thing a woman can do because it would, in effect, pull a woman away from fighting against men for the goals of the movement and make her just a member of society. And the second thing is that you would see a vicious undercurrent against successful women. And we see that with the body positivity movement, where it's fundamentally a matter of personal responsibility to keep a healthy weight. But it, this movement talks about pretty privilege and says you cannot be judged for being overweight and unattractive. All right. You know, how they're, you know how they're full of BS? Why? Go up to a leftist and say, you look almost as beautiful as Lizzo. Yeah. Oh, they'll be, yeah. <laughs> and see what their reaction is. Yeah. But, but we're, we're told that we're supposed to celebrate this type of stuff. Well, it, there's two things. But they mentioned. themselves know that it's BS because if you, if, yeah. if you actually point to people that are, I'm just going to come on and say it, that are massively overweight yeah. and, and you, and you compliment somebody on the left in, in that mold. In fact, it was, um. Tim Poole from Timcast said said, said this uh, a, a yeah. day or two ago, and he was like, you know, we you should start using the language of the body positivity left yeah. and start complimenting them in that, and see how quickly they're going to get angry about yeah. it. Because yeah. like it, it just goes to show how how filled to the brim with BS this is. Yeah. That <laughs> well, it's it's an emperor has no clothes moment. But there's two things that he mentioned there, right? The first one that he talked about within a GSR style movement is that the first thing within GSR is that it would it would be very, very hostile toward the family. And the reason why is because, again, the, the family actually represents or is supposed to represent a, a kind of symbiosis, right? It's this whole idea that, that men are uh, men and women, their, their attributes, their characteristics, their inclinations are complementary, not competitive. But you see the whole the whole modern feminist movement seems to have this idea that, no, no, it's competitive. It's us against them, baby. Well, if it's us against them, that that's not going to make for a healthy marriage. It's not going to make for a healthy family life. And and they need, again, if they need foot soldiers, if they need people to be you know very adamant about this overall movement, then marriage actually causes a positive impediment to these, these modern concepts of feminism. Oh, by the way, Marx... <laughs> And critical theory was also very, very skeptical or outright hostile toward the traditional family unit. And you're seeing this 
all over woke progressive movements as well. It's the idea that you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't have kids. This is a form of patriarchy. This is a form of hierarchy. This is a form of oppression. And then what was the second part that he talked about? Because I thought this was actually really interesting. It was that the second component within a GSR movement is that it will be, it will go after successful women. Now, I, I find that interesting because part of that de- de- depends on the subjectivity of how you measure success. Any nails standing up will be hammered down. Yeah, it, it's, but, but it really is this idea that you, you look at how the feminist movement treats women that don't buy in to third or fourth wave feminism. Right. If a woman says, oh, great. Yeah, I I love this equality before the law. I love access to opportunities that was was previously, you know, and I choose to raise my kids and to educate them at home and to maintain and, and carry the household. Fourth wave feminists, third wave. They treat those women as if they've betrayed the movement. Look at look at how um, look, look at how Tina was treated when she ran for Senate. Yeah. Right. Tina is a perfect example of this. Your, your wife is, is not completely helpless. She literally built this studio that we're in right now. She built the table that my laptop is sitting on and yours as well. Yeah. And, um, she also raised her family at home and homeschooled your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, she, she did all of those things and it would be extremely dumb to say that Tina is not successful. She's been successful in all of that stuff. And yet look at, look at what certain people, particularly on the left, particularly left-wing men, yeah. but also left-wing women had to say about her when she ran for oh, Senate. Oh, left-wing men were the most vile, misogynist asshats to Tina. Sorry, part of my language. When it came to- No, like, no, I know that you were going to say something worse. Oh my worse. gosh, they would. <laughs> I mean, they, one guy just absolutely flipped out on her in a coffee shop, you know, yelling and screaming at her using profanity in, in front of like customers and everyone else because she was there and she was speaking to a small group of women that had invited her to come and talk to him. And he felt perfectly comfortable doing all of this in public in front of everybody. And, and Tina's response was always, she goes, this is how you can tell there is so much pent up, you know, misogyny, like genuine misogyny, not the crap that gets passed around, but genuine misogyny among left-wing men that the moment there's a conservative female, they feel it is perfectly appropriate to just yell out, berate, and attempt to intimidate them in public. They engage in activity that if, if anything even came reasonably close to it, in any other scenario, they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is a sign of, of the patriarchy. Look at how but Riley okay, Gaines was treated. But it's okay when they do it to conservative women because they're traitors. Look at look at how Riley Gaines was treated when, oh, she, yeah. when she went to California and tried to speak at universities. There. She spoke before my subcommittee. And look at how the Democrats on your subcommittee and I wa- I had to, addressed her. I had to stop them and say, I want to make this something very clear right now we are we are not going to continue on with this questioning the intentions and motivations of the people that are testifying to a bill that you might not like and by the way the context there riley Gaines is um a former college athlete she was a swimmer and um very good at what she did and she competed against leah thomas a biological male that decided that he wanted to be a woman insofar as competing in women's sports in college and over the objections of all the other female swimmers, Thomas was allowed to compete against them. And woe and behold, he blew them all out of the water, except for Riley Gaines. Yeah. Um, she, despite having all of the disadvantages, tied him mm-hmm. in, in a competition, very high-level competition in the NCAA. And um, 
when they handed out the trophy, they gave it to Thomas anyway, yeah. despite the fact that it was legally a tie. Yeah. And, and first off, it never should have happened to begin with. It, yeah. It's completely perverted that, that it, in more ways than one, that, that this was even allowed to happen. But Gaines rightfully so was upset that her and her other female competitors were all bumped down a notch, one place in all the rankings well, by a biological male that was allowed to compete with them. And so she started speaking to state legislatures about some of these laws that were being proposed about letting biological men compete in biological women's sports and the response from this is a this is a 20 something year old female college student the by all rights the prime demographic for yeah. left-wing politics for for a loyal voter for the democratic party right and yet she was saying things that goes against the the progressive political orthodoxy and the response that was directed to her because she deviated out of what she was it, it, what was considered acceptable behavior for her based on her age and her gender. Because again, her age and gender indicate she should have been a loyal yeah. supporter of the left. And she deviated briefly. I don't even know what her politics are outside of this one issue. Yeah. She could be massively to the left on everything else, but on this one issue, she deviated from the left and they tried to destroy oh, look her. Look at JK Rowling. Who's actually on the left? J.K. Rowling is a dyed-in-the-wood liberal, old donor liberal. to the Labor Party. Yeah, and 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 one of the most successful authors of all time. Incredible backstory, right? Like I don't agree with her politics, but incredible backstory, incredible like story of success, and 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 doing something you know incredible and 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 instrumental. And, and it was just like no, no, no. If you're not willing to say that men are women, uh, or that a man could just identify as a woman and that he is an actual woman, well then you're a turf. And we're going to, so again, that's why I think when he talks about GSR and he talks about the way it operates, the way it, it, it operates toward the family and the way that it operates toward women that deviate from the narrative, I think is, is, is actually really powerful. All right, let's, let's go to the next clip here. By the way, we, the third um, we have a, a, a question that I think is, All right, what's the question? Um, we, we've gotten a, a few questions actually while, uh, while you and I were talking, Nick, um, one of the questions was actually from Tina, who who wanted a, a little bit more of a brief explanation of of GSR, and I know that that well, we're mean, at the very yeah. end of it here. So it, it, again, it's the gossiping, shaming, rallying, and so the idea is is that if if a if a person does not possess right, and what they're saying is in generally in generalized terms here, women do not possess the ability to compete on a physical plane with men, right, and they typically don't compete on a physical plane with other women, so. Okay, does that mean they just they don't engage in any sort of aggressive action whatsoever? No, they have different tactics that they use. So Jordan Peterson refers to it as things like character assassination, right? So that's you know gossiping. Um, there, there's the shaming component. There's essentially uh, creating social conditions where someone is actually afraid to speak cancel on a particular culture. thing. Cancel culture, and then the rallying is the idea that we're gonna we're gonna come together, right? Because we we need we need the large group in order to push this out, and we got to rally, and you got to be in the group. You can't be outside the group. Because the only way that and we when can you deviate outside the group, you're now you're you're now considered about a traitor. And shamed. Uh, you will gossip yeah. about and shame because we need you to rally. So that that's the whole GSR concept. Okay. All right, go ahead and go ahead and hit play. Big group is the state. A group requires leadership, and in a healthy society, the leadership serves the people. But in many cases over history, that state has enslaved and even cannibalized its own populations. 
One of the books that was able to predict the current political divide was Leviathan and its enemies. It talks about the current ruling class, who unironically are taught through a leftist or Marxist philosophic prism, use the downtrodden and oppressed as an excuse to push the bureaucracy and the college educated into every facet of life. As I've said before in my previous videos, all of the left's policies push things that give the college educated influence and power in society. Pause right there. The I So when he said that, I was like, that is really interesting because one of the things that I, I notice a lot in, in arguments uh, that take place, and I'm not saying that the right doesn't engage in this to some degree as well, but it's always this idea like, oh, I didn't realize you were an economist. Oh, I didn't realize you were an expert. Where'd you get your degree on that? And, it, and it's this idea that if, if you control the institutions, which control the credentialing, you get to decide what expert opinion means. And this, this whole idea, there was a really interesting article, we should actually uh, bring it up at some point, uh, not in this episode, but a different one, where a guy was talking about peer-reviewed studies and the problem with, with modern-day peer-reviewed studies. It's this idea that consensus among experts equals truth. It's, it's, a, it's a giant, I won't use a certain phrase, but it's a, it's a, it's a giant um, circle of, <laughs> of people Peel to that, authority that si simply are citing each other in an endless cycle and then churning out peer reviewed works that are also peered by each other. Yeah. And then entering society with all of their papers that they've yeah. written, citing each other and then saying, look at us. We're the experts patting themselves on the back. Well, and yeah. And I'll, and I'll hear all the time. It's the, it's the whole, this whole idea of, well, I have a PhD. Okay, great. Then what that should mean is that you are now going to give me such a logically consistent and effective argument backed up by evidence and reason that will make it clear that your position is correct? Or are you just going to sit there and say you have a PhD? Because that's two very, very different things. It's an appeal to authority fallacy. But it's 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 been highly effective because when you say things like 97% of the scientists agree or all the experts agree, and the moment you say, well, okay, I disagree with that, you're told you're not allowed to disagree unless you possess, not the same manner of expertise, unless you possess the credential. And, and that is not how science works. That's not how freedom of inquiry works. The beautiful thing about scientific inquiry, the beautiful thing about logic and the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of the excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, the law of rational inference, the beautiful thing about this is anybody can use them. I got news for you. Socrates didn't have a degree, right? Didn't have a degree. Right, the, the, oh, the, but, but, but Nick, that, that's actually proof because Socrates was a straight white male. <laughs> he was part of the oppressive power structures. This is the funny thing is that, and he's going to get to this in a second. Yeah. This is the funny thing is that remember, remember the GSR thing that we were talking and, and we brought up Riley Gaines and yeah. we, we, we brought up JK Rowling and we also mentioned Tina briefly. Um, it's, it's worth mentioning that gossiping and shaming and rallying I love when you said, you know, we will gossip you and shame you because you're supposed to rally with us. You're only supposed to rally with us if you're in the in-group. Yeah. But the entire Leviathan thing that um, Samuel Francis came up with that Waterfelt has mentions here. I, I, the other word, too, that I threw out earlier was the cathedral. Yeah. The, these, these things, these, these non-physical institutions that exist that are, are pushing this, this left-wing ideology on society— that are not essentially run by some cabal, yeah. but are instead or, or or you know their organic processes, they have to have an enemy. Yes, and the enemy has to be 
straight white men. Or, or the dom or what they perceive to be the dominant culture within the society. And, and, and they to view overthrow. that to be straight white men. Yeah. And you're not allowed to be a part of it. The worst thing that you can be is is a repentant prisoner of war yeah. as a straight white white men if you join them. But you will never actually be part of the group, which is part of the reason why straight white men are overwhelmingly more right wing mm -hmm. than Democrat. There's nothing that the Democratic Party has 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 said or done that could appeal to me as a person. Nothing. Right? What's the Democratic Party's platform? Last year it was we're gonna we're, we're gonna defend abortion. <laughs> oh yeah, that's really gonna uh, that that that's really gonna motivate me to go to the polls and vote for Joe Biden's slate of candidates. Of course it's not, right? Yeah. Like like it, 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 oh we're we're gonna push for equity programs. I'm re I remember there was a Democrat member of the House of Delegates who's no longer in office anymore because she tried to reach too far and uh, did not get her party's nomination for higher office. And she had a bill one year. And so many other people thought this was just such a minor thing. And it really, really bugged me. And it still does. She had this bill this one year that got passed that said state contracts for 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 anything that, that requires us sending out a bid to a, yeah. a private business. Um, state contracts, well, his, historically, always go to whoever provides the lowest bid because we want to give taxpayers the best cut. Right. Yeah. We don't we don't want to fleece taxpayers if we're going to have to to pay out a contract to a business to do something. She had a bill that said we're going to allow the state to pick the more expensive contract as long as the business that's providing it is owned by either a fem, uh, female or a minority business owner. Yeah. And, and, and I looked at this bill and I said, I, I if I had been a delegate, I, I would have loved to stand up on the floor and said, would the delegate yield for a question? Yes, I yield. Is the, is the delegate aware of what the language of the 14th Amendment is? Yeah, I did. I had this conversation. Yeah, with, I know that you did. Yeah, I had this conversation on the floor where I said, I would like to read, uh, well, not even the 14th Amendment. They, at the same time, the same woman that was pushing the Equal Rights Amendment within the Constitution was also pushing a bill that gave special privileges to women and minorities with respect to contracts. And I said, I have, I'm, I'm just curious, does your bill discriminate based off of sex? And she looked at me and she goes, well, the bill does what it does. I said, oh yeah, I love that. The bill line. does what it yeah. is. Okay. Does it discriminate based off of sex? And then I read off the text of the equal rights amendment, which she told us was so essential. And I said, you realize that what you just voted on over here would make what you're trying to do over here unconstitutional. unconstitutional. I would argue it's still currently unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. It is race-based, gender-based discrimination. And here's the thing. If you bring this up, you get attacked for doing it. Yeah. Everybody's just supposed to accept the idea that we're going to legally enshrine in code, that we're going to treat people differently based on their sex or their, or, or, or their race. But it's only going to be okay if the discriminated party are men and white people. Mm -hmm. And then if you bring up objections to that, you're called a racist. I'm the racist yeah. for not wanting to be discriminated against by race. Yeah. That, that, this is the clown world that we live in now. Well, it would, all make, it would all make, you know what, Christian, it would all make sense if you weren't such a racist. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's go to the next one. The right tries to benefit those who do not base their power off college degrees. The state and educated push all these oppressed groups at the expense of the dominant culture since the dominant culture in Western countries has lots of social protections, called freedoms and checks and balances, that could curtail their desire to save the world. This may sound unbelievably right, Pause cynical. right here. Oh my gosh. So this is, so he talks about, you just heard what he said. And he's going to go into a little bit now about the whole idea of, of critical theory and what it's rooted in. This is a quote. 
The revolution won't happen with guns. Rather, it will happen incrementally, year by year, generation by generation. We will gradually infiltrate their educational institutions and their political offices, transforming them slowly into Marxist entities as we move towards universal egalitarianism. Right, and that's that's from Damn, Max, was that an Max accurate prediction? That 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 was not a a mission statement. That was a prediction of the future that ended up coming. I mean, it was also a mission statement, but yeah. it ended up. J- j- this guy just had a crystal ball, man. I well, mean, it's. I, I think it's. I tell think me it's that that's not what's happened. Well, and it's interesting. Whenever you talk about this now, it's back to oh, you're 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 red baiting, right? You're red scaring. Like this is ridiculous. Oh, we're not. Well, we're all going to be communists now. It's like no. What I'm saying is, is that I'm listening to the things that you're saying now. I'm listening to things that it's rooted in, and I'm not saying any of you are getting up and saying we want to be communists. What I'm saying is, is that certain fundamental principles that were essential to Marxism to centrally planned economies to removing property rights to you know more government control uh, over aspects of life you you are adopting those things and you are advocating those things and lo and behold if i walk it back five to six decades I, I find a consistent pattern taking place over time from the very people who were very open about what they wanted to do and how they were going to do it and then when i bring it up when i notice it i'm the bad guy Right, like, no, screw you! Like, I'm, I'm so tired of being told you're the bad guy for noticing what we're doing. Why do you even care? Uh, why do I care? Well, I, gee, maybe it's because you just started doing something, and now, especially now, you're starting to involve children with it. Maybe that's why I care. If you cared so much, why do you start doing it? Here's the reason I care: because they want to impose it on me by force. That honestly, that's why that, that that's why I care. If they all wanted to go be communist hippies in a nudist commune in the middle of the woods, have at it. Go, go ahead and do it. If, 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 if they want to start their own country somewhere, have at it. Go ahead and do it. Well, they do want to start their own country here. But here's the, <laughs> here's the thing. They don't, they don't want to do it to themselves. They want to do it to me. Yeah. And the second that they want to do it to me, I, 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 I get upset and angry. Well, this is, this is, I, I, I don't this. want, I don't want this and I shouldn't be compelled to do it. And guess what? I don't care if they think I'm a bad person. If I don't want it, yeah. I still don't want it. In fact, there's some somebody brought this up in the last podcast, and I don't actually ever watch this show. But for some reason, somebody I remember somebody's like Christian's been watching Rick and Morty. There's one episode that I did watch. <laughs> I've never watched this show, but there's one episode that I did watch, and and uh, it, it's the line where where Rick says something like, "Your booze mean nothing to me. I've seen what makes you cheer." Yes, yeah, and I see what the left applauds. Yeah. And, and what they openly push for. And in societies where they have unchecked, unbridled power, what they've been able to achieve yeah. or what they've been able to impose. And I don't want it. And yeah. then when I get shamed by people on the left for opposing what they want, for what they want to do to me, yeah. not what they want to do to themselves. Yeah. I I don't care. I don't. It, it's gotten to a point where I don't care about the shaming. I don't care about the gossiping. Yeah. I don't care about the rallying. I'm not going to let you impose this on me. Yeah. Well, this I is, will resist you by force if necessary. And this is where we get into the next part of this. So let's go now. This is the part where he starts to talk about Leviathan's downfall, right? So Leviathan is, you know, the kind of the, the Hobbesian reference of like the major state, the movement or whatnot that's essentially involved in all aspects of society and, and dominating within culture. And now he's going to talk a little bit about what he perceives as the, the coming downfall. Go ahead. The thing with the Leviathan's coalition is that it's terrified of using physical force, having to rely upon GSR or gossiping, shaming, and rallying. That means that it actually has no real power, for as Mao Zedong said, power comes from the muzzle of a gun. 
when a society doesn't have the ability to actually use military force, it gets conquered. When young men get to the point where they are tired of the system, they have the veto power where the Leviathan can't really do anything. They can shame at the top of their lungs, but we're getting to the point where young men have nothing to lose socially and lots to gain by killing the Leviathan. You can sense the rightward tilt in just the social air among young men. It's gonna take years to play out, but for so many young men that were just normal people, voted Democrat or Labor, been feminists and all that, they're listening to right-wingers since the left provides them absolutely no incentive, and they're drifting further and further to the right. It's normally a little bit beneath the radar, where these young guys won't say it openly, but once they're allowed to think or speak freely, you'll hear it come out. Left-wingers fail to realize that the only reason the far right would seize power is because of them. There will be a tipping point which the consensus changes. The thing with GSR is it's almost a form of magic, and was its only power comes from people believing it has power. Pause. This is the part, this is the part where more and more when, when we talk about this and I, we've done it on our reels, we've done it on our shorts, we've done it in the podcast and people are like, what do we do about this? What do we do that we, we got to get involved here? And I'm like, a big part of what you do is just do what you're going to do in your own life. And, it, and I'm not saying ignore it in the sense that you don't counteract it, but there is an element to what he's talking about. There, there's a part of this I agree with and a part that I disagree with. I'll go with the part I agree with first. I'll go with the part I agree with first. It, it is a form of magic in the sense that, like you said, at, at one point, the reason why gossiping and shaming has power is if the thing that you're saying about me affects me or the thing that you're saying to me. It only wait, has wait, wait, wait. Okay. You're either saying something about me, which affects me, or you're saying something to me, which affects me. What happens when I don't care anymore? I was going to say it only has power if people are worried about being gossiped and shamed about. Yeah. What happens when they don't? What care? happens when you don't care anymore? Like I and I'm I'm there. I don't care. And and it's and it's interesting because for the longest time, Jordan Peterson talks it's about this. It's a badge too. of honor. Actually, it's no longer a and create like like for example, here's here's an example of how this plays out. Let's take conservative, quote unquote. I'll say I'll say Republican. Let's let's take Republican politicians. Go back fifteen to twenty years ago. Go back ten years ago. How did Republican politicians act towards the press? Yeah. Conciliatory. Oh, yeah. Wanting to sit down on, you know, with Chuck Todd and NBC, wanting to wanting to just get their point across and explain how reasonable they actually are and, and how they're misunderstood and how, you know, we actually really want the same things. And, and you know, we all want to just work together. And the only difference is really that, you know, I, I just want a slightly lower tax rate or I want to cut some regulations here or there, but, but we share the same values. And, and, and I, I think that I'm just, I'm just being a little bit understood and I'm trying to be reasonable with you. And surely your center left audience, MSNBC or yeah. CNN yeah. would, would understand if I just sat down with you and had a hour long interview about why my campaign will be better for the future, whatever. Now look at how Republicans treat the media. Oh Yeah. Look at look at how Mitt Romney and George Bush and John McCain treated the media, mm -hmm. and look at how Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump treat the media. Well, and, and we now treat the media with utter and absolute contempt. And when they run articles attacking us, calling us fascists, calling us racist, thank you. We take that as a badge of honor, not because we are fascists or racists, but because we know they are such liars. Yeah. 
that, that when they call us names, we wear it on our sleeves with pride. It, it's important to remember they called George Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney racist, bigots, sexist, Nazis. There was every Democrat's favorite presidential candidate is the one that they beat last time around. And it's always, oh gosh, if only we could get back to the days with like John McCain and Mitt Romney. Like, oh, oh you the mean, guys, the that guys you, you called Nazis being, and racist. Yeah. The guys you called Nazis and racist. I remember when George Bush was accused of being a Nazi or a fascist or a racist or all three of them. George Bush, the guy that gave us the largest welfare expansion until Barack Obama came along. George Bush, the guy who gave us the bailouts in 2008. The guy who gave us two wars in the Middle East, one of which we lost, and the other one we spent trillions of dollars and achieved almost nothing to, nothing yeah. to show for it. And, and yet... He was called all the same things that Donald Trump has called. And then when Donald Trump comes along, the same people that literally were calling him a fascist a few years ago were like, man, I really wish I really miss George Bush. Yeah. And, and like, it, it, give me a freaking break. Here's the it, it, you want to know how the Republican Party has basically become like. Controlled opposition, and I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense. Yeah. I mean this in an ineptitude sense, yeah. because you're a member of the Republican Party and you're an elected official. I definitely do not think you are controlled opposition. Right. I mean, as an institution, I don't mean the the individuals that get elected within the GOP. There are plenty of people that are elected within the Republican Party that are fighting the good fight and believe in the in the right things. But as an institution, the Republican Party is so inept. And here's why. Because the Republican Party currently simply fights to preserve the things that 10 years ago the left was pushing for. Mm -hmm. I, the Republican Party today is at a point where. If the left pushed for a universal health care system, a complete government controlled takeover of health care, the Republican Party would defend Obamacare as the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, 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 what it, it's also one of the biggest problems because ultimately what it means is that all conservatism has now become in the United States. Is to preserve what the left achieved 10 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's essentially become the British Conservative Party because that's all they're doing now. It's like... It, it, it used to be that conservatism within the American political tradition was supposed to mean was conserving certain fundamental concepts about the United States, individual liberty, limited constitutional government, private property rights, free markets. These were the things that were, we were supposed to be conserving. And instead, it's just conserving status quo. And whenever a conservative party becomes obsessed with merely um, conserving the status quo, it dies, primarily because it should. Because at that point, it doesn't stand for anything fundamental. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump to the next one. We got, we're going to jump ahead here a little bit. I apologize for that, but we got to... Oh, man, you know. there's so much good stuff here. Right, go ahead. I have left a link to this full video in the description. Yeah. And you saw this happen in Latin America a lot over the 20th century, as well as Central Europe in the 20th. Right, in this first go. scenario, we see something that Carol Quigley, who is possibly the greatest historian of the last century, talks about, in that the West has had alternating periods between 50 to 100 years over the last 500 years of pushing ideologies that are either order or chaos-based. Where the Renaissance was about humanism and art and all that that's very intuitive, after it came the Reformation that was very socially conservative. Okay, pause right here. Built around. Pause right here. This is interesting. I, I agree with some of these categorizations. I'm not sure about all of them, but I, I do think- Very general. I, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that, you know, the whole idea between um, chaos and order, because typically a lot of times within, you, you could argue that within your, your chaos times, a lot of good things can happen because what you're really talking about is disruption within current systems. And sometimes systems have to be disrupted. 
Uh, but when, once they get disrupted to a certain degree, there's an, there's an automatic backlash and a seeking out of greater, a greater order because of some of the chaotic things that happen as a result of the overturning of things, right? It's the old quote, and, and I, I can't remember who originally said it, but I know that Thomas Sowell uses a lot this idea that before you rip up fences, you should probably ask why they were there. And what you will inevitably find is that they might have been there for, they were always there for a purpose. Sometimes the purpose was good. Sometimes the purpose was bad. Sometimes the purpose was good for the time and is no longer necessary. But you have to ask that initial question on why it is present. And those, those chaotic times where fences start being you know, you know, pulled down, a lot of good things can happen. It's important to understand a lot of good things can happen. But when you start, when, when you pull down bad fences and then you start confusing good fences with bad fences, there will be a reaction to that, and that is where people come back to the whole, no, uh, you are completely upsetting the entire order. The, this, even, this even goes back to uh, like Burkean concepts of conservatism, which was this idea that even if you want something good to happen, it is better to let it happen incrementally over time to where society actually embraces it as opposed to trying to impose it all overnight by law. Because there will usually be a backlash to something that is a complete, like uh, utterly disruptive. And that backlash might even take you, you know, again, it's the whole, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And so th this is, this is an interesting concept. And he has, he has several examples up here throughout the West between the Renaissance, the Reformation, the, the age of sciences, the enlightenment, um, the romantic area, the industrial area, the, you know, uh, irrational activism, social justice, et cetera. And, and it, basically what he's saying is that this is all pushing toward, you know, th this, this current chaotic, um, thing is, is pushing people more toward a desire for a certain degree of, of structure and order, um, because right now it just feels like the whole world is just being turned up on its, its head every other day. It, it's, you know, it's one minute. It's okay. We want to change this structural institution within society marriage. Okay. Uh, all right, fine. Okay. Well now we want, now we want drag Queens to be able to do lap dances for kids. Wait, what? Why are you even noticing? How does this even affect you? Like, are you freaking kidding oh, I love right that. Now? But how does this affect you? This is why I no longer identify as a libertarian. Have you ever seen the meme of the uh, the the fall of the empire? The the famous painting, the the, yes. the trilogy yeah. series of of the the rise, stagnation, and then fall of an empire, and and so it's like the city of Rome's on fire, and the statues are crumbling, and people are running everywhere, and then there's like a a, a picture of a meme face of a dude who's like looking at you, and he's like, "But how does this affect you personally?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and again, here's here's the thing that here's the thing that I would tell our audience: the moment someone chastises you for in quote engaging in the culture war, right? The, the thing to look back and be like, whenever they say, "Why is this so important to you?" The thing the thing to look back is, okay, well, I didn't do this thing. I noticed this thing. Here's my question: Why is it so important to the people that are doing it or advocating for it? That's self-actualization, man. Right? Like, why is it so important? No, why is it so important to you? Yeah, they're going to say it's self-actualization. Well, no, but that's what I'm saying. It, this isn't me doing something and then saying, I demand that all of you celebrate this. This is me noticing something you're doing and then you asking me, why is it so important to me? You're the one that instigated the action. Why was it important to you? There, there was a um a tweet that What It Felt has put out, actually, where um he, <laughs> he, he ended up saying... It's crazy to see how reactionary the right has gotten in the last few years. It legitimately feels like the movement is about to start supporting witch burnings again. And then I said in response, I said, leftists, sets the house on fire. Right. Responds by pouring water on the fire. Why is the right becoming so reactionary? <laughs> like, I, I mean, it, it, honestly, that's... 
I think that's that's the best way to describe it. Because by the way, he actually brought this up at the very beginning of this episode. Um, we might have skipped over it, but but he mentioned this tweet that he sent out in February, and a lot of the comments to that tweet were people saying things like, "Well, if the left didn't want to act like, uh, you know, if if the left didn't want to get burned, then they should stop acting like witches." And I know yeah. that most of these are rhetorical, but but what 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 they're trying to get at here is exactly to your point about, oh, well, how does this affect you? Because I live in society and I don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of degenerates <laughs> that are going to be diddling children and then telling us that it's supposed to be politically acceptable to just let that happen. You cannot have a stable society when the moral foundations of that society are crumbling all around you. And I'm not a moral Puritan. For the longest time, I was on the left in terms of all these social things. I remember I was massively to the left of Nick. When I first met Nick and Nick got elected to Richmond, I, I don't think Nick remembers this, but it was shortly after he got elected. This was like December 2015, and I was on a plane heading to South Carolina to celebrate Christmas with my dad. Nick was about to take office in like two or three weeks. This is post-Trump or pre-Trump. This is right when the GOP primaries and Democrat primaries in 2016 were kicking off. This was years ago at this point, almost a decade ago. And I remember telling Nick, I was reading through some of the bills that people were submitting. And um, one Democrat had submitted a bill to uh, remove all the language in Virginia's code about uh, the definition of marriage being between one man and one woman. Yeah. And I remember telling Nick, I'm like, we should vote for this. And Nick was like, I don't think I really want to because I, I don't have I don't morally support this type of stuff. And I was I remember like I got into a fight with Nick where I was pushing from the left <laughs> to Nick on why he needed to vote to legalize gay marriage in Virginia. And this was me at what, 21 or 20. Yeah. And I'm using this as an example to like demonstrate like I was way to the left on I, I the reason that I identified on the right was not because of social issues. Yeah. I identified on the right because I was hardcore fiscally conservative. Again, I, I believed still do. And the Austrian business cycle, I was very anti Keynesian. I was very anti money printing, all of that type of stuff. Right. But I was very, very socially progressive. And I now see the consequences of, again, unbridled, unchecked social progressivism because what was considered left-wing, the, the things that I was pushing 10 years ago were would have been categorized as left-wing. Today, they're categorized as just the norm, yeah. and what the left is instead pushing in terms of left-wing is just outright immoral well my and when here's the here's the important thing to understand when that whole issue came up too i had people asking me why wouldn't you vote for this i, don't, I didn't think you wanted the state defining what marriage was i said yeah i don't and this bill actually continues that process you've just removed you, you've just changed the definition of how the state will define marriage as opposed to actually leaving it alone but um we got a couple questions here one was uh Burkean incrementalism uh, so this is from Wesley Bravo. I hate abortion and would like to see it eliminated through law, but this didn't work in Wisconsin. Do you think it would be best to be incremental with infanticide? Wow. Um, no. I mean, it, it, here's here's the thing to understand about Burkean incrementalism. It, it's the idea that what what is the end state that you're trying to achieve and what is the best way to actually achieve it? And if the cultural if the cultural foundation has not been laid in order to achieve that particular end state, then it's simply understanding that trying to do it exclusively through the law or primarily through the law will probably yield 
problems. Now, that doesn't mean you stop fighting for that particular law, especially on something so fundamental as human life or, or defending innocent human life. But it does mean that you have to understand that there's still a cultural battle going on at the same time, and that if you're not fighting both of them, if you're exclusively going through the law without at least putting in an equal or even predominant effort into change the way people think about this within the area that you live in, then then you're you're missing the larger point. And so the the whole idea is is you want to be uh, successful long term because you can pass any law tomorrow, and if and if there's a huge backlash. And then they change it, and now not only did you, you know, get rid of the law that was passed before, but you've you've actually expanded it. Well, okay, did you do what was best, even though you were fighting for something that was right? And so this kind of goes this kind of goes to the um, the whole idea that just because your cause is just doesn't mean you're going to win. You have to actually understand the operational environment that you're 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 operating in in order to be effective, and that that's all that means. I'll say this, Wesley: if you have the votes to do it in your state, ban abortion completely. And, and 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 there there's two reasons why one because life is is has infinite value and deserves to be protected but also even outside of that and and th- that alone is 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 good enough justification i just want to be clear on that that alone is good enough justification but there's an edit but wait there's more here's the other thing too Abortion bans and other socially conservative policies are political kryptonite to leftists mm-hmm. you want to prevent leftists from moving to your state and you want to export them from your state as soon as possible, so that way they go back to California and New York and Illinois, pass extremely socially conservative legislation. Because if you pass extremely fiscally conservative legislation, your economy will boom and it will attract leftists to move to your state. And, and by the way, I support extremely fiscally conservative policies. I, 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 I think that the freer the market, the freer the people, yeah. the more economic growth that you'll have and everybody will be better off for it. Again, that was... I got into politics not because of the social stuff. I got into it because of the economic stuff, and I've, I will always support that. But the political kryptonite is not fiscal conservatism. In fact, fiscal conservatism is a political magnet for leftists because yeah. leftists are like locusts. They destroy states that they have complete control over, and then they move to states that are prosperous that have adopted free market policies. And then they get into office, and then they impose social progressivism and socialism, and then they destroy those states culturally, politically, and economically. Yeah. And so the way that you prevent leftists from taking over your state is not to lead with the economics. Fight for it all day long. I will be with you 100% of the way. Free markets work, baby. But that is not how you prevent leftists from taking over your states because they will move to states with free policies. You prevent leftists from taking over your states by pushing for socially conservative policies that are repellent to progressives. So that is another reason why if you've got the votes, push for a complete abortion ban. You should do it anyway because it's the morally right thing to do. And protecting innocent human life is one of the few things that government has a responsibility to do. But even outside of that one infinitely justifiable reason to do it, there's an added benefit, which is, like I said, it's political kryptonite for progressives. Was it Cataphrax too had a question on what is the purpose of the uh, the cross, the frog, and the lobster within the meme that we put on the um, the show page day? And it's we're actually going to get to that. It has to do with where he thinks the right is going to go and kind of the four uh, the the four. I don't know if you want to call them um, factions with, within the right and, and which ones he thinks are, are going to, to dominate. Um, another one we got from Base Zoomer was question: How do we reconcile the founding tenets of liberty? 
and pursuit of happiness with the need to reel in the concept of the atomized individual. How does it affect you? Uh, the realization of, I think that's okay. That's, that's a great question. So that, that always has been, I, I used to describe it this way. The American ideal was supposed to be based around the concept of rugged individualism combined with a sense of community. And, and Alexis de Tocqueville actually wrote about this, I think, in the 1830s in Democracy in America. And one of the things that he found fascinating about American culture was that there, for, for all the talk of individual liberty and rugged individualism and going out into the frontier and, and carving, you know, whatever, out of, the, out of the wilderness, there was still this idea of people coming together in groups through their church, through their family, through their local communities in order to address problems. They didn't wait for a state agency to do it or a government agency to do it. It was just the idea that something needed to be done and then they came together and they did it. And then they went off on their separate ways doing their, their things. So they were still living in community with one another. They were still coming together to, to help one another. But there wasn't this automatic um, insistence that, well, that's the government's job. So I, I think the way that you, you do it is you recognize that at different levels of government, too, there's probably different roles to play. Right. So there, there's a reason why the federal government was supposed to be really limited within Article one, Section eight. And it's because they were anticipating a government that was going to oversee a continental republic. And one of the things that they had recognized, and I, I represent James Madison's district, so I've, I've spent some time at Montpelier. One of the things that Madison recognizes that when republics grow to a certain degree, all of a sudden the centralized authority becomes detached from all of the various areas that it's, it's supposed to be governing and it doesn't operate well. And so that's why you had, okay, the federal government's powers will be very, very limited, very, very enumerated. States' powers will be you know more broad, but there will always be a... Um, there will always be a bias toward individual liberty. So it, it was the idea that the, the power rests with people and then certain powers are delegated to the state authorities and certain powers are delegated to federal authorities. And the, the higher up you went within that, that power structure, the less authority they actually had. Um, so they, they might've had supreme authority within a particular category, but it was very, very narrow. It wasn't as broad. And so I, I think, that was how our founders tried to address the the um, the questions of keeping government limited, so as to pr protect individual liberty, while still understanding that we are running, we are operating within a society, and therefore the government will have a role to play, but it shouldn't be dominant. Um, and that's that's where you actually get into the whole concepts of self regulation. So when, like for instance, when John Adams says um, our Constitution was written for a moral and religious people and was totally unsuited to any other, it was the idea that if people don't have the ability to self regulate their behavior, not just in a practical sense but also in a moral sense, then there will be no amount of laws that will be sufficient to govern such a society. Well, then how do we get that practical and moral sense? Well, the practical is, okay, if I do something wrong, it's going gonna, it's gonna to harm me economically, physically. Morally, it, it generally comes from, from God, right? It generally comes from the idea of an objective moral law and an objective moral law giver. The idea that these things are wrong all the time or these things are good all the time. And no matter what happens within society, I'm expected to you know, behave a particular way is incredibly powerful. Now, I, I believe it happens to be true. Like I, I would argue that what if Alt Hiss probably takes more of a view of, of religion that it has practical benefits, but isn't necessarily true. They can both be correct. Yeah, I take the position that it is both true and has practical benefits with respect to society. So I think that's how you do it. You you allow the institutions of the family, of the church, of civic organizations, uh, fraternal organizations. You know, all all these things that generally come together and and have this um, have this authority. Even if it's not legal authority, right? It has authority through through you know um, 
practical social and economic means of making sure that, that people are working together and cooperating with one another. And when they're competing, they're doing so within certain um, boundaries. Uh, but that's how you get an overall you know, free society, which is also cooperative and collaborative, not just competitive. Uh, I hope that answers that question. All right, let's go to the uh, let's go to the next one here. What is it? Um, Got a few seconds to finish here. In okay, section. yeah, do that. Trying to fix people up for God better, and another example being the Enlightenment, which was all about trying to rationally improve society, followed by the Romantic period that had both very extreme, emotional, powerful movements on both the right and the left. And here's a text wall to go through this process. But social justice is possibly the biggest attempt at Western social engineering so far, or the order side. It's so much order, in fact, that it's failed and become a beast of chaos. And Pause right there. Re- that, that's interesting because I think most people, would, most people would look at woke culture and think it's chaos. And what he's actually arguing here is that with all of the rules associated with with woke progressivism, like what you can say, what you can't say, here's all the pronouns, here's all the genders, here's all this, here's all that. And and it's it's these ideas that there's all these new rules for what you can say, what you can't say, who can say it, when they can say it. It he's actually saying that that it, it's creating it's an attempt to create order. It's it's an attempt to create a new order, but it's actually creating chaos as as a result. Remember some of the examples that we came up with, right? That like yeah. I, I brought up the example of the um, that bill that the Democrats carried in Virginia, d- literally discriminating against business owners based on their race and gender, and how if I brought this up and said this is racial discrimination against white people and it's gender-based discrimination against men, I would get gossiped, shamed, and rallied against for bringing that up. And and so it, it because it's taboo to say that. There's certain things that you can that you are not allowed, that you are not permitted to say because they're they're socially taboo, not because they're false. In fact, because they're true. Yeah. And because they're true, they're a threat to what he calls the Leviathan. And so therefore, you're not permitted to say it. And if you, if you, you know, step over the line, then you get attacked for doing so. It, it is, we look at it as people on the right. And if you're watching this show or listening to the show, you're probably on the right. We listen, we see what the left says and we think this is chaos. This is anarcho tyranny is what it is, right? It's, it's, I mean, look at San Francisco and Portland. It's definitely anarcho tyranny there. (laughs) But like the thing is, is that it's only anarcho tyranny because that's what it's devolved into. But it started as an attempt to create basically a new order. It, it, it started as, as, as an attempt to, to reshape society in this more egalitarian mold that, that, that fit with this worldview. And it really started to emerge in the U.S. post-1960s, as yeah. you brought up. By the way, that's another thing that you're not allowed to say. If you can say the 60s were a complete disaster for our culture, if you're talking in the context of the sexual revolution, the emergence of Marxism within the university system, the breakdown of the family, all of that type of stuff, it's accurately correct to say that. But then you get attacked for being called, a, you get called a racist for bringing yeah. that up. Well, because two things could be true at once. You, you can say that the, the civil rights movement was is absolutely essential um, and, and important and morally positive on, on, at a fundamental level. But if you, but then, but then, well, it's it's also the problem too of understanding the two things don't nece- are not necessarily fundamentally connected. Simply because things were taking place at the same time doesn't mean that everything taking place at that same time was a good thing, right? There can be good things that were happening at the same time that there were bad things that were happening, and you can you know track certain things and say, okay, yeah, that was detrimental, without meaning that this was also detrimental, and and that shouldn't be that hard to understand, but. Again, I, I think some of I think for some people too, they just want clarification. They want to know what you actually mean, and that's fair. 
Um, like again, the, other the, people the, assume the worst though. Yeah. The gentleman that came to me and said, what did you mean when you said this? I said, Oh, I meant this, this, and this. He goes, okay. When you say this, this is what I hear. I'm like, no, I don't mean that. And he's like, okay, I, I take it your word. I appreciate what you had to say. I yeah. could have a conversation with that guy all day. Fair, fair enough. Yeah. But it's, it's worth the reason that, that I brought this up. And I think you agree is that it's worth identifying because us on the right, we would look at this and say, this is again, as he called it a beast of chaos. It's worth understanding that it was an attempt to create a new order. So it's, it's, as he said, it's, it's order that has gone so far that it's created chaos. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the other thing that's important to understand is when you look at some of the things that were, were being attempted by some of the people that like, like the idea. So let's just say like in San Francisco, when they were talking about criminal justice reform, of course, there's instances where our criminal justice system has gotten it horribly wrong. And, and of course, we, we should do things in order to try to prevent that from happening. Of course, there's things that we can look at within our prison system and say, well, if we want to lower recidivism rate, there may be different ways to approach that. And not all of it might be like harsher punishments or more solitary. Like, of course, we can say those things. But then all of a sudden, when it becomes, no, the system is to blame for what is going on, when you're misdiagnosing the problem, you will assign, you know, uh, uh, cures or, or medications or, or approaches to it that will, will lead you in the opposite direction of what you actually want. And then you're going to get the pushback like we're starting to see in places like California. Let's move, let's move on to the next one here because this is where I think we're getting into like his four factions. This is actually the most important part of the entire yeah. episode is this. Yeah, so if you've hung around this long, thank you. All right, there we go. Next, let's go to the next one. Closation on the right. Just in the last decade or so, a large factor is that the Leviathan keeps on trying to purge figures that rise to leadership, thus incentivizing even more radical people to rise to leadership since they have no incentive to be moderate. Look at how Trump, Peterson, and Tate have all had legal action done against them and been canceled. The steam valve has to release, and the less inches the left gives, the more insane the reaction's going to be. Also, even incredibly moderate people get called the worst names like Nazis, so radicalism on the right has been boy who calls wolfed by the left. I mean, let's just stop for a second and remember that George W. Bush was called a Nazi. <laughs> All right, yeah, that's... <laughs> I, yeah, I think he nailed that. I think most people really feel that it's the, it's this whole idea that we're moving towards the moment I disagree with you, I'm called a Nazi. And, and the problem is, is people will generally have one of one of three reactions to that. And Christian talked about this a little bit. The first reaction is that they'll just like, oh, I don't want to be called that. So I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to withdraw from the space because I, I don't want to I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be involved. The ick factor, whatever you call it. Um, so they withdraw. The other uh, or, or they, they, they get offended by being called a Nazi and they and and so they feel like I must have done something wrong. And then they'll, yeah, they'll or, basically surrender. They'll back yeah, up. The, the surrender or withdraw is one is one option. The other option is I'm not those things. Here's why I'm not those things. And if, if after logically explaining to you why I'm not those things, you insist on it. I now don't care what you think. That's step three. though. Right. No, that's step two. Oh, that's, I don't care which I don't care what you I, think. I I'm going what, to fight back. Step, I know what step, step three, three step three is, well, if this is the world you want, you're going to get it good and hard. Step, I mean, there, there, there's a meme that's that I the saw. Scary, that is the scary reaction, right? The scary reaction is someone that says, well, what you've actually told me is that this is all about oppressed and oppressor. And if that's a binary choice, I'm sure as hell not going to be the oppressed. We did a podcast. And that's scary. It's scary yeah, no, when people have right. that mindset. We, we did. Honestly, this is the most important part of the entire episode is this segment. Um, I, I hope that we, we have the opportunity to actually discuss it in depth here. I know that we're already an hour and 48 minutes in, but honestly, this is my favorite episode we've ever done so far because I think it's really, really important. It, it, it gets to so many... 
this is not part of the news cycle. This is beyond the news cycle. This encompasses everything within the news cycle, yeah. right? And I, there's an episode that we did several months ago where I had a line and I said something like, the left is going to create a generation of Andrew Tates. Mm -hmm. And you replied to me and you said, no, it's going to be worse than that. And I'm trying to remember what the episode was on. But it, it was, I, I I think that it was around the time that we were talking about like the breakdown of, of you know, like the rise of lonely men and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And and it was like this this pushback that's that's going to happen. We kind of hinted at this episode. We didn't go super into depth into it. But like there's this meme that I looked at once where it's like all these different slides of somebody growing up, like going through the educational system or um, getting a job or like entering the workforce and, and, and like this message keeps being reinforced to this person over and over again, you are evil. Yeah. And it's like test answer. You are evil is the correct answer. You're, you're giving a lecture at school. I am evil. Yeah. You're like applying for a job resume, uh, you know, occupation evil. Yeah. And then eventually the last, the last phrase is him saying I am evil. And he like puts on like a Nazi mask or something like that. And it's like, I, I think that that's, that's the dark side of, of the right that I see emerging. Not that I think that the right is going to embrace Nazism. I'm using that as a, as a phrase here. But like, I, for example, the left, let's take the transgender issue. What's the, what's the one phrase that they love to use when we do anything, when we complain about genocide. anything? They call it genocide. This is literally genocide. Literally genocide. Yeah. Eventually, there's going to be people on the right and I'm not actually going to agree with them morally on this because even though I'm very much anti the trans stuff, I'm not in favor of dictatorships. I'm not in favor of, of massacres or anything like that. But I, I, I see it happening more and more where people on the right increasingly are, are, are going to get to a point, not everybody, a segment of them, I think are going to get to a point where they're going to say, I'll show you what a genocide actually looks like. You call me, you call me oppressor. I will show you what oppressed actually I, looks like. I think the... Yeah, I, I think the most terrifying thing is, that I, and I don't even know that I, it wouldn't even be right in any sort of political philosophy I've I've ever aligned myself with, right? And anybody that decides I'm now going to use the power of government to punish my, uh, you know, political opponents or something like that, I, I would have to withdraw. Like I can't be a part of that. I'd have to oppose everything, and that's the part that I'm scared about. I'm scared about getting into a situation. I, I feel like scared. it's coming. I feel like I'm, I'm moving more and more to a situation where I, it's it's just going to be fighting against everyone. Because I, I'm not, I'm not willing to go with. I don't care what brand of authoritarianism you're talking about. I oppose it. WL says in the comments, it's the "then let me be evil" trope. Yeah, yeah that's that, that that's something that exists. That 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 is a common trope that exists in fiction. The "then let me be evil." Yeah, you you. If I'm the bad guy, I might as well embrace. I the might role. as well embrace it. Yes, yeah. and if you've been told over and over again, I was like, very extreme when I used the genocide thing, but the left used it. I'm yeah. not. I, I don't actually think that that we're going to get to that point. Yeah. But what I do think, I like, I, I just I don't see that happening. But what I do see happening is right-wing authoritarianism the rise of that which is again this you have raised multiple generations of men particularly white men in the u.s into believing that they are the oppressive power structures i i keep being told that i have privilege <laughs> where's the privilege yeah. i grew up with a single mother in rural alabama in the 1990s yeah we were so poor i don't think people a lot of my friends don't realize just how poor my childhood was at certain points. Mm -hmm. 
I, I had a mother with no college degree, no work experience by herself in her 20s, late 20s, early 30s. When I was like four and five, we had nothing living in one of the poorest states in the country. And yet here I am 20 years later being told I enjoyed privilege my entire life and I have to own up for it and own up for it in the sense that I have to consent to government legislation that will discriminate against people like me based on my race and my, and my gender. I'm not going to accept it. Yeah, I'm not going to accept it. And other people like me who have been raised their entire lives being told they are the problem with society. They are the evil power structures. Society is built around serving and privileging them. And we're about dismantling those privileges. And it's going to be really uncomfortable for you. And you just need to sit down and accept it. And they have not been given anything because quite frankly, it's a lie what the left is saying that society is built around benefiting these people especially if they have had difficulties because let, let, let's let, let's bring up for the you know for example that the left has been dominating our culture and our economics for so long we've had unlimited money printing we've had Keynesian economics ramped up to 11 and that's that that has left so many people behind so many people who by the way the left thinks are part of the oppressive power structures so when those people have been told their entire lives been indoctrinated into the educational system their entire lives that society's built around benefiting them and their response is but i'm still suffering I see all these other people over here that are benefiting way better than me. I'm still poor. I don't have any political power. I don't have any job prospects. Nobody's catering to my needs. Nobody's marketing to me. There's no, there's nothing in the culture that's, that, that's appealing to me. There's nothing that, that, that reinforces positive masculinity. I'm having to go watch master and commander that was made 20 years ago in order to find a positive example of male bonding or Nothing is appealing to me. Nothing within economics, nothing within society, nothing within culture. And then when you complain about that, and I say complain like it's a bad thing, when you bring that up, you get shamed and gossiped against and then reinforce the attacks. And so some of these people are going to make the decision. You have said over and over again, I'm an oppressor. I will show you what oppressed actually looks like. Oh, and that's that's the danger. Bastiat asked the question, isn't limiting the power of both parties a way to make this a non-issue? How do you do that? Like there's only, I, I get into this all the time with people and it's not that I necessarily think it's uh, it's incorrect, my question always just goes, how do you how do you effectively do that? Because I look at other countries with parliamentary democracies, right? So they have multi-party democracies. Technically, we do too, but it's really you know t two powerful ones. And most, but you've got several other countries where you've got really really powerful third parties. Are they in better shape? I mean, not necessarily. I I think the real secret is is that you you know we we get into this all the time with campaign finance reform too. Like, well, what if we just what if we made it harder for politicians to raise money? Like, okay, you can do that. And here's what you're going to end up doing. You're going to end up disadvantaging challengers because incumbents already have built-in advantages. And so the, the question I go back to is you have to have a society which actually believes in limiting the power of government. If you really want to get like money out of politics, get the government out of attempting to micromanage the economy. Because that's the reason why people spend so much money on politics is because they want special advantages or they want special regulations or special tax subsidization or they just want to be left alone from all of that stuff. So it, it, all of this comes down to not necessarily just the political parties themselves, but really the apparatus of power. If you, can, if you actually have a generation that is very, very keenly interested in, in keeping government power in check, I think that does a better job overall. But like, look, I'm I'm all open for 
you know, I've, I've voted for things and carried things before to try to make sure that we're not just, you know, dominated by two political structures, <laughs> parties. But the problem is, is that, again, I don't look around and see other ones and think, oh, it's so much better when there's, you know, the solution to this problem, I've I've come to the but conclusion. But we we've we've got to do this because we've got to get to the, the next. The solution to this problem is is not voting your way out of it. I know that we need to end this and end the clips that way we can actually get to the conclusion discussion of this because we're coming up on two hours. Although to be completely honest, I'm actually not terribly against going a little bit over two hours in order to just get to this conclusion. But Hamilton, do you want to play the last segment that we've got here? Yeah. Let's do it. Give me one second of psychological stability. There are four separate factions on the right, which I will break down as the snake, the lobster, the frog, and the cross. With the snake, that's libertarians and business conservatives, and they're a very big faction. However, they don't have a shared unifying ideology that will make their young men willing to fight and die for them very strongly. So they'll just become part of another coalition. With the lobster, that's Jordan Peterson and his centrist Christianity, which is much more palatable for a secular audience. And either you will see a more centrist Christianity develop, or you will see a more far-right Christianity. If it manifests with centrist leadership, it will be under an ideology that was invented by Jordan Peterson, even if he might not be the ultimate leading figure, or it'll be someone who comes after Jordan Peterson. Then you have the red pill, which is like 4chan and Andrew Tate, and <laughs> will have a tremendous amount of supporters due to sexually frustrated young men. However, it's too cynical to actually form an ideology around, and so it'll be part of the ruling coalition, but not its leader. Then you have the hard Christian right, which I think has an equal shot of seizing control of the coalition as the Petersonians. And fundamentally, it will be a battle between fundamentalists and the Petersonians for the right. So, uh, okay, so that kind of answers the question that I think Cataphrax asked earlier, is like, why do, why do we have these four categories? So I want to We're at the this, end of the video, right? Uh, close. Yeah, close. There's one other thing that we're going to get to. But okay. um, here, here's what it really comes down to. So the, the libertarian, what he said about that was interesting. He goes, the libertarian is kind of like your, your economic conservatives, your, your very, very hardcore limited government. And, and again, I, I have a lot of friends that are libertarian. I've belonged to organizations that are very libertarian leaning. Um, I, I think there's a lot to admire about aspects of, of that philosophy. I also think he's correct in the way that he said that one of the things I've noticed about libertarianism is that it has been incredibly difficult for that movement, even though there's a lot of people that will agree with, with aspects of it, to, to really get a lot of long-term generation over generation of uh, loyalty toward it. Because, and, and I think this is part of what it is, and I've actually talked about this at, at organizations that are more libertarian-oriented. It, it is, I believe that fighting for individual liberty is a, is a good, is a good thing, but it's liberty to do what? And then what do you do after that? And, there, and there's this problem sometimes within libertarian environments that I've noticed um, is that there's this break between libertarian philosophy, which I think is rooted in like the non-aggression principle and, and free market economics and things like that, versus licentiousness. And it's this idea that because the government shouldn't prevent you from doing certain things, that clearly all of those things are therefore morally good or justifiable. And one of the areas that that I one of the areas that I get in conversations with sometimes is people will ask me questions of like, well, no, I agree the government shouldn't do X, but that's not because I'm neutral on this particular issue. I, I actually think this action is immoral. I think it's sinful and I don't think it should be done. That doesn't necessarily mean I think the government should punish it, but that does also doesn't mean I think it's a good thing. 
and I and I find a lot of libertarians, um, not certainly not all, certainly not all, but but there are some some prominent libertarians that very much push this idea of just if it feels good, do it, and it's none of the government's business. There's some libertarians that are more adverse to the right than they are the left. Yeah. Those people will not be joining the right in this in this pushback. They will eventually join the left. There's other libertarians that are more. I mean, like myself, although I'd no longer identify as a libertarian, they, they, they are absolutely terrified of the left. And, and actually, this is a question that I was going to have for you. Why is it that like all these like left wing, socially progressive movements are also economically left wing? They're all socialist in, 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 in to, to, to some degree. I've never understood why. Actually, I, a part of me does understand why, but I'm, I'm curious to go back to my example from like a decade ago where I was fighting with you yeah. and I was pushing the left-wing social policies. Part of the reason I, I no longer do that stuff is not just because I've gotten older and I've gotten more conservative as I've gotten older, but also because like I see what, what left-wing social progressivism results in. And it does not result in libertarianism. Mm -hmm. It results in socialism. Mm -hmm. Well, the, this was, Why this, is that? So this was an important question. I had somebody asking me about um, marijuana. And, and it was a room full of people that wanted to legalize marijuana. I said, look, I said, I've, I've never used marijuana. I have no intention of using marijuana. I said, but if your question is, should the government punish you for using marijuana? My inclination is to say, no, it shouldn't. But I said, now here's my question. Should the government, should the government pay for your health care? And they all said, well, yeah. I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. You want to make a libertarian argument when it comes to, again, smoking marijuana, which again, I, I can be sympathetic to. But then you want to make a socialist argument when it comes to paying for your health care. I said, here's what I want. What I would like is intellectual consistency. If your problem is with the government coming in and telling you what to do with your life and your decisions, but then you want to turn around and have the government subsidize the consequences of your decisions, you're not intellectually consistent. And it's kind of like the whole, and this is the part where, again, and you, and and I've had a, a lot of good conversations with libertarians who understand this. It's the same thing with like open borders. You can't have open borders in a massive welfare state, right? Because you've created a perverse incentive which will destroy itself. So the, the problem is with some of the social norms and things like that is that, okay, if you're pushing for, I want to push back any sort of social prohibitions whatsoever that the government is engaged in, but... I'm going to do it before we've also pushed back some of the responsibilities that the government has taken on that might not be appropriate. You're you're potentially you're potentially working toward a real problem. Now, again, does does that mean that we can't do work simultaneously within these fields? No. Does that mean that there aren't times where it's appropriate to do one thing even though you haven't accomplished the other yet? No. But it needs to be understood that these are practical consequences. If if you're if you're aligning yourself with people and and, and this happens a lot within libertarian politics. If you are aligning with people that do not share your fundamental worldview of personal responsibility in order to get the government out of things, which right now has been set up in order to prevent certain systems within the government from being overwhelmed, then what you're going to get is systems overwhelmed because they don't share your view that, oh yeah, and the government shouldn't have to provide me with X, Y, and Z, especially if I'm engaging in activity that could be potentially harmful to my economic well-being. And, and, and that's, again, that's not me trying to make excuses for it. It's just simply, it's just simply, you know, no, going no, it's, back. It's, yeah. an, it's an important question to ask because it's, it's one that it's, it's part of the reason that I've moved 
so far to the right over the past, I don't know, five, well, let's four years because I, I see the consequences of when the social progressives take over a state. They don't they don't say, all right, we're going to legalize marijuana and then we're also going to lower taxes and cut regulations. No, we're going to legalize marijuana and then we're going to take your guns yeah. and ra- raise taxes on you and confiscate your property. Yeah. I, I'm not about I, I'm with you on point one, but I, I'm certainly not with you on any of the other points there. And that that's why I think that so there's going to be somewhat of a backlash. And it, it, it gets back to your point that like the worry here is that the libertarians are not going to be the ones leading this right wing backlash because they're too decentralized. There's no leader yeah. and they're too fractionalized as well because there's a good chunk of libertarians that are actually going to join the left because quite frankly, they're left libertarians. Yeah. They care more about the social stuff than they do the economic stuff and stopping progressivism, which means that the remaining libertarians at that point they're going to coalesce around either the Petersonians or the the, the red pill. Well, this is why. Okay, types. who who are the most who are the most easily recognizable libertarian leaning people within the United States? It's going to be Rand Paul, Ron Paul, Thomas Massey. What do they all have in common? The Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because because Republicanism actually and they're not big L libertarians. No, no, and and but they they should have less. Okay, now let's go into Petersonians because this was this was an interesting one. So he, he calls it a Petersonian like centrist Christianity, and that's interesting because Peterson is not a Christian. However, he seems to admire many aspects of Christianity. He he, he actually strikes me more of being kind of like a deist. Um, he, he's moved a little bit in that. I don't think that it would be fair to call him an atheist anymore. No, he's not an atheist. I, I think I think a, a deist is probably the the best way to describe him right now. But it's but the other thing that Peterson talks about a lot, and Peterson used to be of the left. Uh, he worked for the Socialist Party in Canada. Yeah, P- Peterson talks a lot about personal responsibility, and one of the reasons why I think what he says is so appealing, especially to the demographic that we're discussing here today, and this is will young men rebel. Because the idea is it's going to be young men that finally say, screw this, right? Young men find Peterson, I think, appealing because a lot of what Peterson talks about is empowering the young men because it turns out men typically don't want to just sit around and be taken care of by the nanny state. Men want a mission. They want purpose. They want meaning. And that's not to say that women don't. Women want that as well. But these things tend to manifest themselves a little bit differently in the way that they're applied within within society. And and Peterson telling young men, hey, get up, make your bed, tell the truth. You know, and, and it's amazing the backlash Peterson gets from the left for telling young men, be better, right? Take responsibility for your actions. Be the sort of man that can be a, a good husband, a good father. Be the sort of man that, that can actually protect and uphold and defend society so that people can go off and do all these things. And oh, by the way, this is something the feminist movement doesn't want to acknowledge and something that I'm sure will get me in a lot of trouble. Don't care, by the way. The reason why the feminist movement has made the progression that it has is because the vast majority of men agree with central tenets of feminism, such as equality before the law, equal value, if not, if not equal place, and by the by equal place, what I mean is, we're different with respect to our our uh, our generalized characteristics, our biology. There's things that men can do that women aren't aren't in general are not essentially suited to. There are things that women can do that men will never be able to, such as carry human life in a womb. We can't do that. right? And so when you start to see these differences as complementary instead of competitive, that's beneficial. But I, the, the part that so many people are warning about right now and the feminist movement doesn't want to accept is that if you have a, if you have a 
generation of young men that decide we don't like this anymore, they can physically overthrow the system and there's no amount of gossip, shaming, or rallying that is going to prevent them from doing so. There's a there's a line in this video um, in, a, in a segment that we didn't go through simply because we needed to pick the, 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 the right segments in order to get through the important points of this within at least under three hours. Um, there, there, there's a segment in this video where What I Felt His says, I think there's a decently high chance of women's rights being evaporated in the future. And I remember when I first watched that, I kind of like laughed because it just came out of nowhere and it sounded funny at first. But then I started thinking to myself and I'm like, under the dark scenario, right? Because we've we've talked about in this podcast how there's there's kind of two paths that the right could go down. We haven't yeah. gone super into detail in it, but but we've made some strong hints that there's two. Well, that's paths what we're going to end go with. Down. We're going to end yeah. with the path. The dark path does include something like that, because yeah. the, the the dark path could be he, the dark path could be younger men who become conservative, but they might've actually started off on the left. And he also brought that out that a yeah. lot of young men that, that, you know, traditionally voted Democrat or labor and now realize that these left-wing political movements have literally nothing to offer them and instead vilify them, even if they're voting for them, vilify them and then pass laws to discriminate against them. Yeah. Eventually those young men are going to be like, F this. Yeah. I'm no longer a part of you. Well, and then if, if, if they you, get, if, if they if get you pushed can in, use the, 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 the counter argument here, right? This is the part where, Logical consistency is important. If the argument being used by the left is we can use the government to provide ourselves advantages at your expense, well, then the argument from the other side is, okay, so we can do that too. It's all just a question of who has the levers of power, right? Well, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Why not? Well, because you're an oppressor. Okay. Right, that's that's the dark side of this. That yeah. again, they're going to be able to look at this and come to a logical conclusion that this is just the way the world works, and I'm playing by your rules, and I'm going to play them better. I, I and Nick, to be completely honest with you, and we've had conversations about this like privately before, so it's kind of actually it's kind of weird to like bring it up in front of like thousands of people. <laughs> um, I, we've only got several hundred. We actually got a a lot watching live. Um, but you know, when this episode goes out, it's going to get you know, our typical episodes over a month get, you know, over 10,000 views. So a lot of people are going to listen to this. So it's kind of weird having this conversation now kind of in front of other people, but you and I have talked before. And I mean, I've told you, like, I'm part of me is really worried about the direction that the right is going yeah. because I, I, and the reason why is because I see and understand and to some degree sympathize with the segment of the right that is going to eventually say, forget this, we're, we're going to seize power and we're going to, you've had your chance to do things your way. Now we're going to do them our way. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you physically can't stop us. And here's the reason why eventually they, they will eventually the, the dark side of the right will either take power or the positive side of the right will. And the reason why is because we've did, did, did an episode a couple of weeks ago about why the U S dollar will inevitably collapse mm -hmm. and it will. And I'm not I'm not going to rehash that entire episode, but the 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 summing up of, of it was is that the federal government keeps having to run budget deficits in order to fill all their welfare programs and all their transfer payments and everything, and eventually the only way that they're going to be able to fill that need is through money printing. And when they eventually get to a point where the only way that they can fund the federal government is through debt monetization, that will lead to hyperinflation that will destroy the value of the dollar. And when that collapses. The federal, the Leviathan's power, because the federal government is a component of the Leviathan, the Leviathan's power will be gone at that point. 
What what will then prevent the right from seizing power when the federal government can't pay the ATF agents to go take <laughs> your firearms from you? Well, let's nothing can. Yeah. And so all the message that needs to be sent to the right, especially the people that were sympathetic to like the January 6th stuff needs to be this. You don't need to storm the Capitol. You just need to sit back and wait. Well, because if uh, think about it, if you just wait for the system co to collapse, and this is why you get some people on the right that are actually accelerationists that are saying, we need to speed this process up. We need more spending. We need more socially progressive policies. We need more of, of the left's policies because eventually if we give up the fight, this is this is, um, gets back to the people that I brought up earlier, the the neo-reactionaries, the, the Curtis Yarvins and, and Nick Lands, who, who actually think that like you need to stop fighting the left. And the minute that you give up the fight and you let them win, progressivism will immediately crumble. No, I, so I, I will say this, and I want to say thank you very, very much to Josh too, who gave us a donation. We really, really appreciate that. Um, I, I think, I think what, what you're saying is, is the whole idea of, um, again, bringing, bringing order out of chaos, but sometimes chaos has to get to a certain point. And, and the problem with the coalition on the left too, is that b because it's built off this idea of oppressor versus oppressed, and it always needs an oppressor and it always needs an opponent, there is no victory. There's just a new battle. There's just a new oppressor group. And, and so when they take charge, you know, again, we, we talked about this before and Yuri Bezmenov talked about this too. What, what happens to the revolutionaries after the revolution? They typically get shot by the people that have the power. And that's, I don't say that flippantly. That's a horrible thing. But it's the idea that um, this, this, like we're, we're constantly looking for new enemies because we have to have new oppressors in order to rally our group. That is problematic and doesn't it doesn't create a stable society. All right, so we got the Petersonians. Next, let's go into the red pill people. And again, he described that as kind of like the um, the four chan, you know, Andrew Tate side. That's that's more of your that is your the toxic is, masculinity. Yeah, that is your group most likely to burn it down. Right. That that's the group that is going to have more of the inclination. I think of you said and and again, look Tate. Tate has said things I agree with. Tate has said things I, I don't agree with. In fact, there's there's a whole component of that that really frustrates me because there, there's so many things they get right on men having to take responsibility and step up. But one of the things that pisses me off is this whole idea that, oh yeah, and men can also sleep around if they're high value. Like, no, that's not the way this is supposed to be. That you, you are supposed to be noble, not just, not just valuable. You're supposed to be noble. You're supposed to be honorable. Not it's, just rich. It's the dark side of the right. Not just rich, not just powerful, honorable, noble. And and I and I do think. And I do think they try to achieve that in certain areas, but I think they miss it in others that are fundamental. But I think that's the group that is most likely to say, screw you, because in part of the way they've been targeted, the way they've been targeted, the way they've been silenced, and and the attitude, again, they're, they're going to be the most likely to fight fire with fire. Uh, the fourth group, that which he, he describes as the fundamentalist or the hard right, uh, Christian right, and then, and then he goes on to say that he thinks that what you're going to probably see is some sort of coalition dominated primarily by, you know, Christian right and the Petersonians because the Christian right of the Petersonians are the ones that are actually pointing towards something that can, can provide, they can provide long-term can, can we stability. just play the next like minute or two of this where he, he explains briefly what the, um, you know, what, what, what these, the other, the other coalitions are. Even if he might, uh, do you remember what timestamp that was? Just, just play it right now. Might not be the ultimate leading figure. Yeah, this is the right part. Or it'll be yeah. someone who comes after Jordan Peterson. Then you have the red pill, which is like 4chan and Andrew Tate, and <laughs> will have a tremendous amount of supporters due to sexually frustrated young men. However, it's too cynical to actually form an ideology around, and so it'll be part of the ruling coalition, but not its leader. Then you have the hard Christian right, which I think 
has an equal shot of seizing control of the coalition as the Petersonians, and fundamentally, it will be a battle between fundamentalists and the Petersonians for the right. I'm going to make a best and worst case scenario here, both of which which I think are plausible, and then through discovering these two separate trajectories, we can try to figure out what the right can do in order to not completely dishonor itself. In most religions and world history, the dominant principle and thing humans can use to bring out goodness against the chaos of the world is conscious thought. Because without conscious thought, we're slave to our emotions and passions, but with it we can plan around them and then be able to form some kind of order. And the worst position for the right would be it just naturally forming raw chaos without a coherent single ideology and just acting in a vindictive way against everyone it feels wrong against because if it has a coherent ideology it can actually hold itself to a moral standard All right, pause, I mean, it, pause this is where we get past this <laughs> we're not going to pause on the yeah, hitler screen <laughs> this is the part this is the part where i i think um you know again so let, let's kind of let's kind of wrap this up talking about the the four factions and and where where this could go I, I, I will maintain that I don't see the libertarian faction. Uh, I, I think they can influence a faction. I, I don't think they'll ever be able to lead it. The libertarian moment never happened. Yeah, I don't think they'll ever be able to lead it. And and that leaves you with one of they'll, the other They'll three. be part of it. It's, it's not like the libertarians are no, going to disappear. Be, they'll be influential. They will be part of the coalition. They're not going to be the ruling. No, they can be influential. They will not be the lead. The other three could potentially lead. Now, here's what I will say. I think he's right that the, the two the two leading institutions that would give us the best chance going forward would be the Petersonian and the, the Christian right provided that the Christian right understands that Christian right doesn't mean theocracy, right? Christian right means there there's, you know, certain basic uh, standards and traditions. And, and one of those traditions must be individual liberty and freedom of conscience, right? It, it can't be something where you're imposing because here's, here's what I'll say. Any sort of Christian entity that attempts to impose through law, essentially conversion or adherence to Christianity has violated Christianity. It's a violation of a core tenet of Christianity. Now, I know this has been done in the past. My point is, is that it's inappropriate. It's actually unbiblical, right? I'm not allowed to use the coercive force of the state to compel you to believe what I believe. Now, what I can do, or, or theoretically what could we do, is you can say, look, there's certain legitimate roles of the state, which are to, you know, punish evil and admonish good. And so we're going to, we're going to set up a, a basic structure of law, which any sort of behavior, which leads toward the violation of other people's rights, freedoms, property, uh, you know, body, et cetera. Those are things that we can put restrictions on. And then to some degree, if you wanted to go past that, that's where you go into questions of federal authority versus state authority versus local authority, and you actually have respect for some sort of jurisdiction. So the, the, the federal government is not going to act as the National HOA Association, right? The federal government is going to focus on Article 1, Section 8, but then localities that have certain you know, traditions, ideas, concepts that they want to, um, like for instance, they don't want brothels, right? This is the libertarians like, why can't I have a brothel? The, the Christians would be like, no, you, you can't have the brothels. We're not legalizing prostitution. The, the Petersonian centrists would say, okay, yeah, you're not going to do it over there, but if you if you do it over here, then that's that's their individual decision. And, There's and a few things the libertarians powers. are going to have to compromise on. The, the, the Probably the most, the biggest one is is the border. Yeah. Um, uh, Char Charles Cook actually talked about this in his book, The Conservatarian Manifesto, where he, he basically said, you know, 
libertarians are going to have to compromise on a couple of these points with the right in order to form the coalition that, that they ultimately want because the alternative is either the dark side of the right or social progressivism and the libertarians that are okay with, with, with not just social, but also economic progressivism, they've already bolted. They've joined the big L libertarian party and they're just a bunch of losers to be completely honest. So I, I, I and I say that with, with bless their hearts as they say in Alabama, but, um, I, I do think that that is the positive side. Nick, as usual, is going to be presenting more of the uh, the positive case scenario, <laughs> and I'm going to be the doomer here because I, I, I. I well, well, let, well, then let me just clarify that real okay, quick. I think I think what ends up happening is is you you can't let you can't let what he describes as the four chan community, right? You can't let the people that are just pissed and angry and want to burn it down take over. You can't let the the people that essentially are not providing any sort of, of vision for what the future looks like other than liberty, they won't take over because that that's not what while fighting for individual liberty is a good component, it's always fighting for it for what? Then what comes next? The 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 Peterson in, in what he just des- described, right? And I'm not saying these are the only options, but in what he described you know, when he talks about the Christian or religious right, because it doesn't need to just be, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a Christian, but I, I, you know, would be happy to work with people of other religious faiths on, on uh, various, you know, issues and, and social uh, arrangements. And it, it's, it's that side that essentially says, look, this is what I would say is more of the, the Thomas soul, um, the conflict of visions, um, the left being the vision of the anointed and the idea that humankind is infinitely perfectible through the right social systems and social engineering versus the tragic vision, which is to say that, all right, we do live in a fallen world. There are certain, there are objective moral laws. There is objective reality. There are constraints to what people can achieve. There are constraints to what is even, you know, theoretically possible with respect to what government can achieve. And so the overall end state should be a limited government with very, very narrow authorities at the federal level, potentially more expansive, even though I might not like that at the state level and at the local level. But essentially it is there to provide a certain degree of, of order and security from both foreign invasion or domestic um, uprisings. And it is there to protect individual liberty, property rights and the people and for people to be able to engage in the marketplace. That's the sort of society that I I'm I would advocate for with a very, very strong civically minded society and, and population in the sense that they respect personal responsibility and and accepting the consequences of one's own actions, but also displaying a degree of, of compassion and empathy for the fact that people make mistakes or people can be subject to things beyond their control. And so therefore we have an individual rather than a government responsibility to come in and assist. And that's where I think the, the religious nature of that society is very important. It provides for the self-regulation. It provides for the obligation, moral obligation, not legal, moral obligation to engage in charity at the same time that it provides a, a framework and a structure for establishing order and keeping government limited and within its proper place as an element of society and not even the dominant element of society. And so I think you're more likely to get that in the scenario that he think, I think you're more likely to get that between a coalition of, of, you know, the religious and, and the Petersonian approach to society and the libertarians. Uh, well, I, I think because the, the libertarians would want a return to federalism, which is what you're advocating. Yeah. The, the libertarian, the libertarian will, will, again, I think they're influential within that coalition. And then when it comes to the, the kind of what he describes again is the red pill 
Um, that's the one where I think they just need to be able to, I, I think they, they can coalesce around um, kind of that Peterson approach of like, we're now, you're now going to have a society where the things that were pissing you off and making you angry are, you know, not there anymore, or certainly not the, the threat that they currently are that you perceive them to be. And then secondly, you do have something to work for because there's still the concept of self-improvement. There's still a concept of building your family, building a business, building, you know, whatever it is you have the ability to engage. You have the ability to take that competitive nature, the, the aggressive aspects of masculinity and now push those toward a productive outcome instead of a destructive one. And so that, that's the, that's what I'm hoping for in the coalition. But I do think um, when it comes to, to young men, and I know some people have gotten mad at me at some of the things where I, I've, you've gotten mad at me before yeah. because you feel like I'm, I'm trashing men too. And please understand when, when I'm critical of some of the decisions that, that men have made in general within society or the way that they even view society right now, I'm not being critical of masculinity and I'm not being critical of all men in general. What I am saying is that I'm not, I don't see any way out of our situation by telling men, you're right, none of it's your fault, and none of it, you, I mean, it's all just sucks, burn it down. It's these 304s, man. It, it, yeah. it's like, <laughs> I, I said, my, my, my argument is going to be strong men make good societies. So go be a strong man. And the response I get back is, you don't understand what it's like today. Maybe not to be at your age today, but I do know this. Strong men, strong, honorable men create good societies. And there's no other substitute. And it sucks. It sucks that you've got to be honorable and strong in a situation, in a civilization, in an environment that is repeatedly hammering you for it and trying to shame you for it and trying to guilt you for it. And the only thing I can say is you got to do it anyways. You got to do it anyways because your children and your grandchildren are depending on you to do it. Yeah, but... but and so I'm not, it's I'm not, not, I don't hear, so I'm not, wait, I'm okay. not denigrating. I am not denigrating how difficult it is. I really am not. I'm just saying, brother, there's no alternative. We don't have another option. I, I, I here's now allow me to present the bear case scenario. Yeah. I, Nick, I, I really appreciate what you have to say in the fact that you, you know, are, are advocating for that stuff. Even though I, I, I'm, I remember I got into that, that fight with you. It was immediately after a podcast. It was after the podcast where, where we decided to turn it into a series on, yeah. on dating and relationships last year. But like, I, I just, I don't, I don't believe that's going to happen because you said right there that, you know, you've got to do this because your children and grandchildren are depending on you. These people don't have children and grandchildren. They've got nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. I'm 29. I haven't had a stable relationship probably since I left high school, entered college. And there's no sign that there's ever going to be one, to be completely honest. But here's the thing. I'm not saying this like, woe is me, I'm a victim. I'm saying this like, this is the reality. I've come to accept it. Quite frankly, I, I don't think I care anymore. Shame on, you know, their loss. I ended up being relatively successful in what I did. Um... And, and now I look at it where it's like, okay, I've got the financial resources and the experience and I'm, I'm older and more mature now. Um, if it weren't for my height, I probably could find somebody, but I don't actually really think I want to anymore because the way that the system is currently built, what exactly do I get out of it? I get to what, marry somebody that slept around with 20 other guys and then they could divorce me and take half my stuff. I worked really hard for my stuff. What did they do? Nothing. 
because it's my generation I'm speaking about. It's not like I'm speaking about these young whippersnappers. I'm talking about 20-something-year-olds like myself that I grew up with, that I went to high school with and college with. I know, I, I, I know what my generation has produced in terms of women. And they're pretty trash. I also know what they produce in terms of men, and they're also pretty trash too. But the ones that are pretty trash in terms of men, they have gotten to a point where, I, again, I'm, I'm telling you, the, the, the dark side of, of the right emerging is absolutely terrifies me because I've, I see it happening. And it's not going to happen yet. It's going to take maybe 10 or 20 years, but it will happen. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified that it's going to happen because, as I said earlier, the system will eventually collapse. The dollar will eventually collapse. There's no appetite to cut spending or balance budgets in, budgets in D.C. And when they flip on the money printers again next time, F.A. Hayek's road to serfdom will be complete at that point. And when that happens, there will be a, a power vacuum because the federal government will be so inept and incompetent, it will not be able to, to hold on to control. And at that point, the dark side of the right, I really do see, I, 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 I really see that they're going to, they're going to win out. And it was, it's, it's crazy because when I first got into politics, I was convinced that it was the left that was going to take over and force us into 1984, right? I said earlier, it was the democratic socialists were going to keep getting elected. They were going to be able to implement their policies with only token opposition from the right because politics and demographics moved in their direction. And then when their policies failed to achieve what they promised that they would deliver, they would abandon the democracy side before they would abandon the socialism side. That's what I thought was going to happen. I, I believed that from 2008 to, say, 2012. And now I've gotten older and I've come to believe that that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is the left will keep winning election after election until the system breaks. And when the system breaks, they will not be the ones that will seize power. It's going to be the right that seizes power. And it's not going to be a return to federalism and constitutional government. It's going to be authoritarian right wing. It's, it's going to be, for once, the left will actually be right when they say it's fascism. And you know what? I don't agree with it, but I, I understand it. And I, I, I will understand why it will happen. I, I'm I'm not going to necessarily be marching with the guys when they when they when they go seize power. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be one of the boogaloo boys, right? But like, I, I, I not that I think they're going to be the ones to do it. But you you get my point that like, yeah. the, the, it's the, one of those things you don't like it, you don't want it to happen, but you understand. I understand why, why, you why understand, it's you happening. You understand how it could. Well, and, and and this is this is where and it terrifies me because like I think the left is going to supply. I said this earlier in this episode. I think the left is going to supply the rope that will be used to hang themselves. They will yeah. win election after election until they break the system that they also said was oppressive and and you know filled with with power structures that discriminated against marginalized communities. Whatever they control all the institutions in this country, but you know what? They won't control them forever because when they break the system and they will break the system at D.C. We all know at this table that what is currently going on in D.C. is is unsustainable. One day, the system will fall apart. And when that system falls apart, what replaces it is not going to be left-wing utopianism, and it's not going to be right-wing constitutional government. It's going to be right-wing authoritarianism that replaces it. It will, be, it, it will not be a return to James Madison. It will be a return to Caesar. So, Christian, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because, I, obviously, I'm still single and have not found my wife yet, but... I'm also not as cynical towards the possibility of finding that woman within the next few years. What, what do you think about our situations have led us to different conclusions here about the possibility of that happening? Oh, man, that's a difficult question. I, 
I had something that I wanted to say earlier, or like, like when I was listening to you, but I, I don't want to say it because it's going to sound insulting, and I don't mean it. It, oh. it, it you. It, the audience doesn't know me as well as you two do. Yeah. Nick, Nick and Hamilton, I've known Nick for almost a dozen years now. Yeah. And I've known Hamilton for, what, three or four years three or four now? Three years, yeah. They both know that, like, I say things that can come across as, like, really mean or offensive. <laughs> and, and, no, no, seriously. But yeah, I don't, but I, yeah. I don't, deep down inside, I don't actually, I'm not actually trying to, like, be you're, little you're or You're blunt, not cruel. I'm blunt, but not cruel. I'm very right. blunt. But I, I value your guys' friendship tremendously. That's why I'm on this podcast two days a week. Um, but, like, I, I think that part of the reason is, is that, like, I've just, I, I, I spend a lot of my, my spare time, Hamilton, you spend a lot of your spare time, like trying to like harvest new skills to be a better producer, to, to do a better job running this show, right. to, to like obtain technical skills. I spend a lot of my free time in, in like philosophy. I yeah. read a lot of history. I, I read a lot of philosophy. I read a lot of what people say on the internet Yeah, and what people say before there even was an internet. And I've just been convinced through all of my reading and research, I am an academic-oriented person. Um, I wanted to be a college professor when I was younger. I'm just convinced the stuff that I read and see, not just recent but even older, but especially recent stuff, that the, the backlash that is going to be coming is going to be fascist in nature. It's not going to be a return to federalism. And, and I think it's going to be... I'm going to say so something that's going to be very dangerous, but I, I think it's going to be driven by people like me. And I, that terrifies me. Here's I, what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Just, just, just listen to what I say. Jordan Peterson gets a lot of flack for this, but he's 100% right when he says that the worst atrocities that have ever been committed have been committed by ordinary men. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, there's a book called this. And, and the, the, the book is about how the milkman in Germany ended up joining the by SS. Sotsen group, yeah. And... and Peterson, he says that this is an extremely important thing. Yeah. The left denies this. And when anybody brings it up, they then accuse you of being evil. But it's actually the opposite. Peterson says, in one of his biblical series lectures, he says, there's a piece of Cain in you, no matter how able you think you are. And when you recognize that and you accept yeah. that there's a piece of mm -hmm. Cain in you, and we as Christians believe that, mm -hmm. at least I'd like to believe that we believe that. Maybe we only say it and we don't actually believe it, but it, it's worth, you should believe it. You are capable of tremendous evil. Mm -hmm. Even if you think you're a good person, even if you think you're, you have good intentions, it's when you recognize that you are capable of tremendous evil that you can restrain yourself and prevent yourself from actually committing the evil that you are capable of. And so that's why I say that I, I, I think this, this dark side of the right is going to be driven by people like me because I think it's true. And, and I'm, I'm saying this because I don't want to be part of it. Yeah. I'm, but I'm scared that people like me will be. I'm convinced that people like me will be. I don't want to be a part of it. I want no, I, I, I want no part of authoritarianism. I want to live my life in peace. I want to marry somebody and raise a family and be a good husband and father and be a successful entrepreneur and businessman and, and have a legacy to hand on to my children. I want to be able to, I I've told you my dreams. I want to be able to buy a Victorian house, a Victorian mansion and refurbish it and restore its history because I love history so much. I have very simple goals in life. I don't want to impose my will on anyone, my, but I, I I'll end with this because yeah. I want to hear what you have to say, but I'm absolutely terrified that people like me, 
and hopefully not me, but people like me are going to be the ones that are going to usher in the death of the American Republic because the left poured the gasoline on the floor, lit the match and handed it to people like myself. And then they dropped it and started the fire. And that's that, that's the direction that I see things going. I'll leave it to you. You know, it's, it's been really interesting to watch some of my acquaintances and friends go from high school age to graduating college to having a career and see their interests in life adjust as they get older and they experience more things. And to me, it, it, it only makes sense that there would be a backlash amongst conservative men if those men feel like, one, they have no purpose, and two that the purpose that they wish they had had been taken from them or removed the possibility of that purpose being removed. And I, I personally, amongst my friend groups and the people that I know, I just see more and more men realizing that being a dad and having a family is a good thing and is worth pursuing and is worth putting effort towards. And yeah, the, the dating market may not be encouraging and there may not be a lot of women that, um, you know, that I would want to marry or, but, you know, I think, you know, over the past few weeks, I've been talking to a lot of different people. And I think women that are in the dating market have the same problem of not being able to find men that they want to build a family with. And so I I think that, I I guess I'm just not as convinced that there's a backlash that is going to happen. And what I'm going to ask you now is convince me that it's going to happen. Oh, with enough chaos. With, with enough, it's with, already happening. Yeah, with it, with enough. Uh, look, to to the degree that it, to the degree that again, Christian is more. Christian is more. Um, it, he thinks it's inevitable. I I think that there's still corrections that could be taken that will blunt what will happen. Like I I think Christian thinks it's just going to collapse. I I think I think we can have a little bit smoother landing than splat. Right. Yeah. But but there's no question. There's no question that there's certain things that have been been put in place just economically, fiscally at the same time that some of these other things are happening to, to social structures within the United States that are generally important to maintaining order. But if you get into a place where you start to get into hyperinflation, if you get into, and, and you don't have other structures which are able to guard against the sort of things that happen with economic collapse, then you're, you're in for some really, really rough times. That's just, that's just inevitable. I'm sorry, history shows us that too many times. And, and we, have, we have done too many things fiscally and especially monetarily at this point, to to not avoid something significant, and and the problem is is that if if again if you do those things in a society where there's still a strong family structure and there's still a strong like um, you know religious institutions and and other social institutions that that provide glue within society, you can navigate those a lot easier. But if you're just going for like total full on hedonism. Yeah. Like if it, if it feels good, do it. And I identify as anything I want. And, and, you know, I, I can make whatever decisions I want and somebody else is obligated to pay for to do it because, you know, you're an oppressor and I'm not. And you know, who said this best was actually Joel Salatin. What did he say? Joel Salatin, who, who's a, um, a farmer, really, really interesting guy. Just great, great guy, great family. They have polyface farms up in the Valley in, in Virginia. And he was talking about when he lived in Venezuela and the coup took place. And he said, when you have a breakdown in the, in the various political and, and legal and social structures within a society, regardless of what the motivations of the people engaging in the rebellion of the coup or whatnot, it ends up being an opportunity for people to settle old scores against everyone else. And so now that person you didn't like, that person you had a grudge against, that person you were angry with, there's nobody there to stop you from doing something to them now. 
And he described it as, he goes, we went, he goes, the machine guns came in the front door and we ran out the back. And that was it. And we lost everything we had down there. And I think that's part of what Christian's talking about. It's, it's this, we, we have sometimes this idea of how things are, are going to manifest itself or, or how people will act in that environment. And we assume, because, because we've never experienced it, we assume that, oh, well, of course people won't you know, in, engage in, in looting and violence. And, and more and more, I got to look at someone when they say that and be like, really? Mm-hmm. Really? And, and why do you think this? Because you haven't experienced it? Okay, well, you're, you're going to have to do a little bit more understanding of history to recognize that it's entirely possible. What Christian said is that what people are capable of justifying in crisis is, is interesting enough. But what people are able to justify when they're angry yeah. and, they, and they feel genuine resentment and it's revenge time, um, that is also shocking. The and German then, people felt resentment towards the Treaty of Versailles, and look at yeah. what happened next. Well, and and even that's a, that that's an extreme example, but it's one. Worth well, and, and up. even even when you look at even when you look at groups like with because again the question is, and Peterson devoted so much time to this is try to understand how do regular people engage in atrocities like this and then go home and kiss their children. Like that's the part it's so difficult to grasp your mind around. Yeah. How does someone go out, line up a bunch of innocent people? strip them down naked, shoot them in the back of the head, push them in the pit, and then go home and read their kid a bedtime story. Right? It, it's, if you're not aware of the, the uh, amount of evil that you're capable of, you'll never be able to develop the, the character, the strength, and whatnot to be able to combat it when it becomes tempting to use it. And, and, and again, the, this is the part where I think to Christian's point, it's easy to develop a society of men that are willing to keep the evil at bay when they when have something when worth fighting when for. They're standing, when they're standing in front of something that they love and they're willing to die for. Like there was, there was only one time in Iraq, two combat tours, I don't know how many ambushes, how, or not ambushes, how many raids, how many missions I went on. There was only one time where I really thought, I, I, might, I might not make it out of this. And, and I had a decision to make at that point, and I, and I could remember something my father said to me. I can remember something that I, I felt obligated, not just all my family, and spe- but specifically my son. And it was, if I don't do what I'm supposed to do right now, and I survive, I'll have to explain to my son at one point, or I will live in the knowledge that everything I tell my son to do with respect to honor and integrity and sacrifice will have meant nothing, because when it was my turn, I didn't do it. And, and I remember vividly thinking in that moment, I got to do this and come what may. Like, I've, I've got to do it. I have to do it, and it has to be me. There's no other way to I have to do it. And, you know, thank God. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be sitting here and, and not at Arlington. <laughs> um, but it, but it, was, it was easy to have all those things flash through my mind because I had a wife, because I had daughters, because I had a son, because... And, and the, only thing, the only thing that I can, I can give to that and... The only, the only thing that I can give in response to all of this is, is, is this, and, and this is why before anything else, my faith is, my faith is paramount. Um, in, Philippians, in Philippians, Paul talks about the peace that surpasses all understanding. He doesn't talk about the peace, which is easily recognizable because everything is wonderful and great. And, and again, p- peace in the midst of prosperity and security and wealth and abundance is, is obvious. It's, it's understandable even though it doesn't always materialize that way. It's the peace that surpasses all understanding. And 
the reason why I, I do believe that my faith provides that under that underlying foundation for everything else with respect to my worldview is because I do believe I do believe that there is a God. I do believe that there is a moral law giver. I do believe that there is a purpose. I do believe that this isn't all just some experiment. And I do believe I have an obligation to live honorably. And and I do believe that there is there is something in that that if that if tomorrow I didn't have my wife and I didn't have my kids and I didn't have all the things right now that 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 you know compel me to get up and to be better, there would always be that. There would always be that. It can't be taken away. It absolutely cannot be taken away. It is not subject to what the culture tells me. It is not subject to what the government tells me. It's not subject to what popularity tells me. And it's not subject to what fear would potentially attempt to drive me to do. None of it. And it, and it becomes something, it, it's, not, it's not a crutch. I believe it to be true. If it were a crutch, it, it would be faddish. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. But because I believe it to be true, and because I think it, it honestly is true, then no matter what happens within the storm, I know what my mission is. There's a donation from Thumper who said, thank you for the donation, by the way. He said, Christian, your concerns are why you have to be involved so you can prevent it from going that direction. We need a return to the founder's vision. We can't sit back and hope. We got to act. I, I, I completely agree. I want the, the, the positive outcome. I'm just terrified that it's not going to happen. And I've been fighting my whole life before I was even legally eligible to vote. <laughs> yeah. I've been, Nick knows this. Nick has known me since before I was even 18. I've spent, I've devoted my whole life to this. The fighting. Yeah. I, I, I said earlier, like I wanted to be a college professor when I was younger. I did until I met Nick. That's the reason I'm at this table. I, my plan was to go to school, get a PhD and teach at, at a university somewhere and teach history. And I met Nick and I decided this guy gets it and he's worth pushing to give him a bigger platform so he can convince more people of our shared values. And I decided to put my entire life on hold, change the course of my, of my career, you know, trajectory and go into politics to help Nick get that bigger platform. Well, dang, I, no pressure. Thanks. Man. I've been with him on and off ever since, but like yeah. I, 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 Hamilton, you asked me earlier, explain yeah. to me why, you know, you're so pessimistic. There's two components to it. And Nick did kind of hint at it. The first one is, and I think we can all agree on the first one. The first one is the system will collapse in this. I don't mean Mad Max. I mean, yeah, yeah. the dollar system will collapse eventually because when's the federal government ever going to balance its budget? It's not going to happen. It's only a matter of time until that happens. We've been speculating for decades, but eventually there's there's it has a 100% track record of fiat currency systems collapsing. 100% track record. So that will happen. We all know that will happen. That's why we are fiscal conservatives because we know Keynesian economics does not work. Money printing does not work. If we know that hyperinflation will eventually destroy the dollar and thus destroy the power of the federal government, that leads to the second point that I have of why I'm so pessimistic. If the system collapses, if the federal government no longer has the power of the purse at its beck and call in order to coerce states and localities to do what they want to do, what exactly prevents them from being replaced by a more authoritarian system spearheaded by people on the right? And if you want proof of this, We've seen it happen. We have all been on the libertarian side of the Republican Party, the more liberty-oriented side of the party. When have we ever won anything? 
We, the libertarian Calvin moment Coolidge. came and went a hundred years. No, seriously, yeah. you know I'm right. You guys yeah. know that I'm right. The libertarian moment came and went. Ron Paul didn't get the nomination. Mitt Romney did. So we we had the and not that he's the authoritarian guy. He's the loser establishment guy. Yeah. Those guys are being replaced by the Trump wing of the party. When 2016 happened, it wasn't Jeb Bush that got the nomination. So it wasn't business as usual. It wasn't the controlled opposition people that won, and it wasn't the libertarian people that won. It wasn't Rand Paul that won. It wasn't even Ted Cruz that won. Not that he's really a libertarian guy, but he's he, he tried to he he tried to to you know play off of that system. It wasn't either of those two people that got it. It was Donald Trump that got the nomination. And Donald Trump got the nomination. Why? Not because he had any conservative credentials. The guy was a Democrat five minutes before he ran for president. It wasn't because he had any conservative policies. I remember he was bumbling over himself talking about how the government's going to pay for people's health care in the middle of a Republican primary. He got the nomination because he said what people on the right had been wanting politicians to say for a very long time. He went to the cathedral. He went to the Leviathan. He pointed his finger at it. He pointed his middle finger at it. And he said, F all of you. We're going to seize power and we're going to do things our way. And the people cheered him for it. And they lined up in droves and voted him into office. And then they learned after four years that he couldn't achieve everything because the Leviathan is still in charge in D.C. The cathedral is still in charge. Most of these institutions are still dominated by the left. The president, even if he has an R next to his name, even if he's Donald Trump, can only achieve 1% of what somebody like FDR was able to achieve. And so when the system collapses, because it will eventually because we have endless money printing and endless growing deficits, and those will only eventually be able to be filled through debt monetization, which again, we're all on the same page. That will lead to catastrophe. When that system collapses, the thing that will replace it will be a more competent, more ruthless, more authoritarian equivalent of Donald Trump, who will tear the Leviathan to pieces. He will dismantle the cathedral. And when that happens, the only way that it will be achieved is through authoritarianism. Progressivism will be smited, but unfortunately, it will not be smited through a return to constitutional government. It will be smited by handing power over to Caesar. I disagree. <laughs> no, listen, that was incredibly passionate, well thought out, well delivered. I just don't agree. I don't agree that it has to be that way. I don't agree that it has to be that way, but I will say this. It, it's, it's one of those things where... It, it, even if it even if it went that way, I, I know which side I'll I know which side I'll be on, and it will not be on the side can, of. Can I jump in for a moment? It Nick. just won't. Yeah, I, I I think that there's a, the possibility that all of this is very depressing, and I think what we all need to keep in mind is that the left, like you've said many a times, Nick, did not win this battle because they started it yesterday. They started it 50, 60 years ago, and there is joy to be had in investing in one's family and in investing in one's future and being part of a community at a church and serving others. And I, I think that one of the biggest things that we can do and understand is that, uh, you know, oftentimes we look to politicians like Donald Trump and these people, and we hope that they on our behalf can make huge strides in the right direction for us. But the Leviathan is strong. And, you know, I think you're right, Christian, about Trump, you know, only being able to achieve so much during that time frame. And at the same time, having to play the extensive game that he did as being a to be a politician. Um, but there's joy to be had in the small things. There's joy to be had in your own family. There's joy to be had in your own children. And I will hopefully have children at one, some point in the near future. And that's a good thing. And that's okay. 
I just uh, look. There, there's a there's a part of me that kind of cracks up. Please the, explain why I'm wrong. I, I I'm looking for for uh, so, proof of that I'm wrong because here's the thing. Deep down right. inside, I feel like I, I that you think I'm right because when I brought up when was the last time our wing of the party won anything? Yeah. We're losing out. We we did not replace Donald Trump is the punishment the establishment wing of the Republican Party deserves for compromising and surrendering to the left on everything over and over again. What the Republican Party stands for today is what the Democratic Party and the progressives were pushing for 20 years ago. And it has been like that for my entire lifetime. And did we decide to replace George Bush and Mitt Romney with Rand Paul and, and Thomas Massey? No, we didn't. We replaced him with Donald, with Donald Trump. And I understand why. I didn't like Trump in 2016. I didn't vote for him in the primaries, but I, I totally understand why he won. I completely understand why he won. And I understand why the future is going to be more like him and less like Ron Paul and Rand Paul. Not, not By the way, not that I think Donald Trump is actually a fascist dictatorship, despite what the left says. I don't think he is. But explain the flaw in that thought process that I have here, because we both are very active no, in look, politics. No, look, here, here's the thing I would tell you. It's, I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that the potential conclusion that you laid out couldn't happen. I'm saying it doesn't have to. But but the the problem is is that if when when you take a purely fatalistic view of the world, and 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 every time I say this, I get accused of well, you just don't understand how it is. Okay, I I I'm not suggesting I do. I got married at 19. I'm very grateful for that, and I got married in in 1999. Right, so it was it was a little while ago, and I understand that things have changed. Here's what I can tell you. I know how I've raised my son and my daughters, and I know they don't buy into this crap. So it's, it's possible. I also know this isn't the worst time in human history. I don't know how long it's going to take. I just know where I'm going to stand when I'm called to fight. That's it. Yeah. Like the, the thing that I go back to, somebody asked me before, like, why do you, because believe me, if you don't think there aren't plenty of days during the week where I'm like, why am I still in elected office? I know I keep having to fight right. to no, convince and, and, it, and it's not because I don't think the job's important or whatnot, but this is not my life dream. My, my life's dream was never to be in elected office. I think it's important to fight this battle within these areas and I'm willing to do it. But I, but somebody keep asking me like, why do you, you know, you know, defeat after defeat after defeat. And it's been a rough time in Virginia. We had a, we had a pretty good election cycle two years ago, but, but it's, it's been kind of rough. Why do you keep doing it? I'm like, <laughs> I am not promised victory in this lifetime. I'm just not. And I've accepted that. Right? What I'm called to be is obedient to my purpose. That's what I'm called to be. I'm called to be obedient in purpose in this life. Right? And, and so my hope is, is that I will constantly live my life in such a way to where I am more concerned about what God says when I arrive than what man says when I leave. Because I can't control all the other stuff. Yeah. I can't. And the more you focus on that, which you cannot control, the more depressed you will become and the more fatalistic you will become. The more you focus on the things that you can control, the, the more, the more victories that you, that you rack up in those little everyday encounters or everyday missions or everyday duties, those compound, they do, they compound. And, and quite frankly, at the end of the day, if, if I do want to drive people toward a direction that I believe is positive, then I have to show what the positivity is, not just within the arguments that I make, but with also with the way I live. So yeah. I, I have an obligation to do that. That's the, that's the being obedient to my purpose and recognizing that 
God's got the rest of it. My job is not to be God, and everybody that attempts to do so ends up doing really, really horrible things. My job is to be obedient to my purpose, and that's what, will, that's what has always sustained me through times where I've just felt, what is the point? The point is, I was put here for a purpose. Go fulfill it. The comments to this episode are like so positive. I, even though this is a somewhat depressing topic, I actually love this conversation. I mean, we've, we've got to love it because we've carried it on for almost three hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got, we got, I, I know that we've got to yeah. wrap it up soon, but like, yeah, it's just worth pointing out that like, man, we, we had a lot of really, really positive comments in this, uh, in this episode of people that like really enjoyed what we were talking about. And I think it's because when we talk about these like really deep philosophical things and we kind of like go through why are things happening? Why are they the way that they are? Where are we going? What's the good and bad outcome? It, it's, we, we remove ourselves from kind of the rat race of the 24 hour news cycle, which is just so, I'm just so over it. Yeah. I would much rather have these type of conversations every day than, did you hear the latest thing that, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden gaffed yeah. when yeah. he had a press con? Like, I just don't care. Yeah. I just don't care about that stuff because the, it's a distraction from the bigger problem and the bigger issues that are coming down the road. We all know that when I said there was two things that are leading me to this pessimistic conclusion, we all know number one is going to happen. How do we avoid number two? How do we give meaning and purpose to conservatives who increasingly feel like there's nothing worth conserving, right? Hamilton keeps talking about, well, there's meaning to be found in families. That message doesn't work when nobody has a family to, that's worth defending. When, when somebody's in their 20s and 30s and they don't feel like they have any prospects to get married or have kids, that message doesn't resonate with them. Conservatism needs something worth conserving and, and we need to provide that that meaning so that way when the crisis actually gets to a boiling point and the right seizes power they seize power in a positive constructive way and we restore federalism and constitutional government and we bring back the founders vision and we don't dive into well we've got the crisis of the, the roman republic it's time to hand over power to caesar that is the dark side and i'm scared of it but it's I don't know what the solution is. I think the dark side's going to happen. But if if we're going to avoid it, I certainly think we can all agree that the way that we avoid it is is that we provide that meaning and purpose, and we try to orient people that are conservative towards finding meaning and purpose outside of the twenty four hour news cycle and politics on a day to day basis. Because we need to be ready. The people that that tried to storm the Capitol on January six, they they were dumb for multiple reasons, but. I actually think most importantly, they just need to sit back and wait. Seriously. Like the system will eventually collapse. And when it does, people like us will fill the void. And we need to make sure that when we fill the void, we're filling the void in a positive way, not a negative way. And there is an, I, I will concede this. There is a chance that we can restore constitutional government, but it's only going to be found through providing meaning and purpose. And currently those things I think are, are heavily lacking within our culture across the political spectrum. So I'll end it there. I'll let you close out no, and, look, and I, I Hamilton think, if he wants to chime I, in. I think that I think that's perfectly fair. Again, as, as I go back to pretty much on every episode now, I feel like the good news is yep. you don't got to ask permission to do a lot of the things that we're, we're talking about. Again, if you want to find purpose and meaning, you're going to first find it in the way that you live the life, the, the family that you create. And yes, it can be difficult to find a family. That doesn't mean going out there and fighting to find one and then fighting for it once you have it isn't worth the effort. And there's, there's meaning and purpose in, in even the effort of finding it. 
And so, listen, I want to thank everybody. We've got three hours. It's our longest, yep. longest ever. You guys have really stuck with us. We've had, we've had a lot of people consistently watching, asking questions, providing comments, donations as well. Can't thank you enough for that. It, it really does help. But once again, I want to thank you all for sticking with us. Join us. Please let us know what you thought of this conversation. Also, give us ideas for what you would like to see us discuss and what you would like to discuss with us in the future. Once again, thank you, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.